Hi, this is Steve. I actually love seeing movies by myself. In fact, some of my favorite movie-going experiences were solo, including Die Hard, John Wick, and Midnight Run. Hmm. Midnight Run. Interesting. Uh, I'm sorry, where was I? All right, seeing movies solo. In 1987, I had a few hours to kill between classes, so I walked down to the local multiplex on Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley to see what was playing. I decided to take a chance on Rob Reiner's The Princess Bride. After all, I was a huge fan of The Sure Thing, Spinal Tap, and Stand By Me. I liked it within the first few minutes, fell in love during the sword fight on the Cliffs of Insanity, and knew it would be one of my all-time favorites when Inigo finally got his revenge on the Six-Fingered Man. The Princess Bride was a box office disappointment when it came out in 1987, but in the years that followed, it soon became a treasured favorite, one of those rare films that can be cherished by all ages and is just as funny, thrilling, and heartwarming no matter how many times you've seen it. So, if you haven't seen it, seriously, what are you waiting for? As always, you can purchase The Princess Bride and every other film we've ever reviewed on our website, cinephiles.net. That's C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S.net. And definitely tune in this Friday to hear John and I talk about The Princess Bride, a film that holds a very special place in both our hearts. I will go up to the six-fingered man and say, Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a producer, writer, host of shows here in Los Angeles, California, and occasionally a voiceover artist as well. And today, we are doing a film. It's the 30th anniversary. Yes. Which does make me feel old. <laughs> but it's also a film that I love just as much today as I did the first time I saw it. And in fact, we just did something yeah. that, believe it or not, after 60 plus episodes, we might even be up to 70 by the time this airs, we have never done, which is we just walked out of the theater yes. where we saw The Princess Bride together. Yeah, we did. And you suggested this. And Fathom Events, I guess, was doing a yeah. screening of it for the 30th anniversary. It is the... Third time I've seen it in the theaters, and I remember the first time I saw it in the theater. So, what was it? What was it? Oh, well, it is was, that the first time you saw it? What, right now? No, 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 no in the theaters. Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. First time I ever saw it was in the theaters, and I went uh, when I was, how old, what is it, 86 film? 87. Right? 87. So I was 16 years old, I guess, when I went to see it, you and went. I went on a date uh, with this girl I was seeing at the time as a sophomore in high school. I think we went to go see it. Uh, and I remember it was at the AMC. We sat on the right side of the theater, and I was in the aisle. Back when, when you have like two rows in between the main area, I remember distinctly where I sat because the film was so incredibly different and memorable to me that I've never forgotten the experience. Yeah, for me, I saw it in the theater. Yeah. And this is one of a f those few stories of mine where... I went to the theater by myself. I was oh. seeing it alone. Wow. At, in Berkeley at the UA Theater on Shattuck. <laughs> and I remember walking in and just like this was my movie. Yeah. I mean, it was just a, so 
everything I love about movies was in this film. Yeah. And this is one that I watched. You know, I owned it in every format. I owned it on VHS, on mm-hmm. Laserdisc, on DVD, on Blu-ray. I've watched it over and over again. And today, mm-hmm. we got to take my wife and my son when we went today. And it's right. just like, this is one of those movies where all ages, everyone can appreciate it in their own way. Absolutely. You could show it to your kids. You mm-hmm. could show it to your grandparents. And it just... I just adore it. I it's, really do. And it's one of those films that if anyone doesn't like it or criticizes it, I question their heart. And it's really rare. <laughs> yeah. It's really rare because it does nothing but show you this incredible storybook, but with some real danger, some funny jokes from some great comedians. And it does not lean into being this like princess fairy tale type thing. There's more reality to this film. There's more uh, complexity and depth to the film than you would expect from something like this. And that's what makes it so enduring because it's realistic at the same time as being a fantasy. Well, and there's this satire. Yes. There's this whole sense of we know that what we're doing is kind of silly and we're having fun with it. And this is the thing I was thinking about because it's come up on the show before Mm. is we've talked about Galaxy Quest. And the great thing about Galaxy Quest is that it is a parody of Star Trek, but it also loves Star Trek and fully understands understand Star Trek and in its way is delivering a great Star Trek episode while making fun of it. That's a great point. And this, I think, is not that. It's almost on the mirror opposite side, Mm -hmm. which is it is a great, lovely fairy tale fantasy adventure, while at the same time, its tongue is just enough in its cheek that, and it does this thing, I can't think of any other movie that does this, where it is fully embracing what it is, Mm -hmm. and at the same time, allowing you to laugh at it too, or yes. laugh, laugh with it because it's they're in on the joke. It. Yes, in on the joke with yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're not laughing at it. You're laughing with it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. So uh, I want to give some history, yeah. just because it's so fascinating. Because of course this is uh, uh, based on a book by William Goldman, mm-hmm. and uh, we talked about William Goldman uh, when we did all the presidents men. Yes. And if you want to hear a great. John Roca story about William Goldman. <laughs> we are not going to tell it here because you yeah. should go back and listen to our fantastic episode on All the President's Men, which is one of my favorite episodes uh, ever, and it is definitely worth the story. Did I tell that story on that episode? Oh, yes, you did. It is fantastic. <laughs> All right. Um, William Goldman is a great screenwriter, a oh. great novelist, and, and it's funny. So I reread the book uh, to do this, and yeah. this is one of those few cases where the movie is fantastic. And the book is fantastic, yeah. and they're both equally fantastic, and they are slightly different, and they're very much the same, and they're totally worth your time. Yeah. And the book, of course, is written, it's you know titled The uh, Abridged Good Parts Version of the S. Morgenstern Classic, and he tells this story in his introduction. And I'm going to try to do an abridgment of his introduction, okay. just because it's so interesting, which is that, you know, as a kid growing up, he had trouble in school. He wasn't, you know, like a great reader. He had this one teacher, Mrs. Rajinsky, who's worried about him because he just wasn't a applying himself, kind of messing up in school. And then he gets really, really sick with pneumonia. And he's home from school. And his dad comes in to read this book to him. And his dad is an immigrant. His English isn't that great. He's a barber. Um, and he starts reading this book that his father read to him, this, this The Princess Bride. And it was that book that changed his life because that's what started his love of uh, Robert Louis, Louis Stevenson, yeah. and and then he comes into Mrs. Brzezinski says, "Oh, you like Robert Louis Stevenson? We'll try, you know, Dumas, try Victor Hugo, try mm. all these books." And that, and he credits that with him 
becoming a lover of adventure and writing adventure stories, so much so that when he published his first book, he sent it to Mrs. Rajinsky and said, I don't know if you remember me, mm. but you meant so much to me, and I wanted you to know that I'm fine. I'm really a writer. You thought I would never, could barely you know, read when we yeah. started. Yeah. And she writes this note back that says, oh, I, of course, I remember all my students. Good luck. And he's like, oh, she doesn't remember me. And he turns over the note, and on the back of the note, it says, it says, idiot, not even the immortal Morgenstern could feel so parental. Because <laughs> she remembered him. And I was like, oh, wow, there's a great story. And the, the introduction goes on to when he's a Hollywood screenwriter and he's done Butch Cassidy yeah. and the Sundance Kid and he's doing all these uh, Marathon Man and all these other things. And and he's but he doesn't have a great relationship to his son. And he it's his son's birthday. And he goes, I know I'm going to give him S. Morgenstern. I'm going to give him the Princess Bride. So he scours all the bookstores and finds this old copy, sends it to his son. He goes home and his son read the first chapter. And he's like, it's really boring. He's like, boring. How could it be boring? And he looks at the book and realizes that when his dad was reading it to him, his dad with this thick accent struggling through these pages, he was skipping all these boring parts about the economics of Florin and the <laughs> costumes and the rituals of the wedding. And that's what inspired him to write the abridged good parts only version of this classic book. Wow. Wow. And here's the thing about this. Everything I just told you is complete bullshit. Of course it is. It's told, there is no S. Morgenstern. <laughs> there there is. is no Princess Bride. There is no book. His, he doesn't have a son. He has, there's no Miss Rajinsky. His father was a banker and not an immigrant. And yet he writes this introduction so movingly yeah. that even knowing that it's bullshit, as I was listening to again um, recently, I was like completely drawn in by it. Mm -hmm. Um, and he continues throughout the whole writing of the book talking about the, all the things he's taking out of the original version, which, of course, <laughs> does not exist. Um, and so and, 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 and that's one of the and that is what made this was a bestseller mm -hmm. and just a fascinating book. And all these people wanted to make it into a movie. One of the first people he gave it to was Carl Reiner because he knew Carl Reiner. And this is in the early 70s. And Carl looked at us and said, I don't know what to do with this. Right. And he gave it to his son, Rob, who loved it. But at the time, he hadn't even started doing All in the Family yet. Right. Robert Redford wanted to do it, Norman Jewison, Francois Truffaut wanted to do it, John Borman wanted to do it, and nobody could figure out how to do it. I don't want a John Borman Princess Bride. No. That's so scary. Oh, it'd be the worst. It'd be the worst. It'd be the worst. Uh, <laughs> and then finally, Rob Reiner, he's made Spinal Tap, he's just finishing up Sure Thing, and he suddenly goes, hey, my favorite book. People make movies out of books, and he goes back to William Goldman and gets the rights to do it. Right. Yeah. And... And the the but still can't get studio financing to make the movie, mm. and the person that's instrumental is his boss from All in the Family. Norman Lear puts oh, wow. up all his own money to make this film. Wow! Yeah, something they tell you not to do in Hollywood. Yep. Yeah, the only thing he did was he made sure he had distribution. Right. Um. Through I think it's through Fox. But no, it's Norman Lear paid for, paid for this movie. What incredible investment it paid off. Oh my God! Yes. Well, not at first, as we're going to discover. Ah. Yeah. Um. And. Uh, of course, the first thing we had to do in, in pre-production is that we got to get the right cast. Yeah. This is one of the great casts of all time. Agreed. Yeah. So much so that you can't see anyone else playing these parts at that time. Yeah. And they're so surprising because a lot of us didn't know who any of these people were. Obviously, I yeah. knew who Andre the Giant was, Billy Crystal, what have you, Carol Kane from Taxi. But I had no idea who Carrie Elwes was. I had no idea who Robin Wright was. Nope. And Mandy Patinkin, I had no because I had not seen anything on Broadway yeah. that he was fam becoming famous for. Right. 
And so for me, these were a lot of these were new actors, and especially all the British ones. I didn't know who Peter Cook was or right. Toby Smith, who plays the the the, old, the uh, guy who takes the care of torture, the albino, yeah, Mel right? Smith. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know any of these people. Well, so. and they're all cast. There's this combination. We're going to kind of go through them as we meet yeah, them. Yeah. I think, but there's this combination of there is no other human on earth who could play this part, right? And there's also people in there's like, how the hell did you come up with casting that person yeah. as this role? Yeah, yeah, and so brilliantly done by that person too absolutely yeah. should we get in the film let's do it so we start with a video game <laughs> yes i remember this video game Me too <laughs> i remember it too and it was so fun because we watched it literally just a couple hours ago yeah. we were watching this video game and i was sitting next to my six-year-old son and going like he doesn't even know what that is nope we spent hours playing little baseball video game like that those are the graphics we had to deal with yeah <laughs> you with your hd 4k exactly. 3d virtual reality Look at that. VR games. <laughs> yeah. It's like we had one button. <laughs> um, and there is young Fred Savage. Yeah. Playing this video game. Um, uh, did you watch The Wonder Years? Yeah, of course. Sure. Yeah. I yeah. mean, who, who, he, he is, he's the perfect little kid in this. Yeah. And I've, I've actually enjoyed Fred Savage for quite some time, even after this. You know, yeah. uh, he, he, did, he even did that. He did a sitcom called Working, which I enjoyed. And so it was good. Yeah. And so there's a number of things that I've seen him. And of course, our friend Michael is really good friends with Fred. And so, right. yeah. And so, yeah, he's uh, per, in our lives. So yeah. And we find out he's homesick, which, of yes. course, parallels what happens in the non-existent right. story of the introduction. And Grandpa's going to come in and read it for him. And in walks Peter Falk. Yeah. This, again, it's perfect casting. You yeah. can't be any better. No, just great. I mean, who knew Columbo could play this grandfatherly part that was so... Perfect, and he, you know his hair is, his hair is obviously dyed yeah. gray, and, and but he has this great like physicality to him, and the costume is great, like the thin tie. Yeah, that's how your grandpa, that's how you saw American grandfathers look or grandfathers look rather. The hat and all the whole nine, it was just brilliant. And 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 is Fred nice to him? No, not at all. No, he's a bratty he's little kid. Irritated by him. He's irritated well, by. We're him. all irritated by exactly the old the old guys who come because they because they don't care. They they they've lived the life already. You're still starting out life. Well, and they don't get you. No, you know exactly. I want to sit here and play video games. What's Grandpa brought me an old book? That's right. When I was your age, television was called books. <laughs> and this is one of the things that that is key to this film is that yeah. is that yes, it's, it it is sword fighting and giants and fire and torture and you know, adventure and true love. And it's also about okay. the passing down of stories from generation to generation. Yes. And the importance of that. And that's what we're going to get in because grandpa's going to read this story that his father read to him and he read to his father and grandpa's going to start reading to, it to Fred. Yeah. And we go into the princess bride. Yeah. It's funny. You wouldn't think that Peter Falk would make a good narrator. No, well, yeah, right. Because he's got that Peter Falk. You know, it's like, yeah. that's not a narrator voice, and it's perfect. It is. It really is. The Prince's Bride by S. Morgenstern, Chapter 1. Buttercup was raised on a small farm in the country of Florin. Our favorite pastimes were riding a horse and tormenting the farm boy that worked there. His name was Wesley, but she never called him that. Isn't that a wonderful beginning? Yeah, it's really good. And we go and meet Buttercup and the farm boy. Mm -hmm. So our first bits of casting, Robin Wright and Carrie West. Yeah. I'm not, not getting, you know, people say like, could there possibly be two more beautiful people on the whole planet at this time? And those are two really beautiful people. Yep. Man. Yeah. And they work well together. Perfectly. Because uh, as the film progresses, you see that they're more than just 
beautiful people, which yeah. is what's great about them. Yeah. Well, because what they have to do, there's so much resting on them, yeah. particularly on Carrie Always, I would say, mm-hmm. because, and, and this is the thing, is that they needed someone who looked that beautiful. Yeah. They needed someone who could physically do what they wanted them to do. Um, and they needed someone who could be funny in this very particular narrow way of being funny. Yeah. And I think when they did the audition, they flew out to a movie that Carrie Ellis is on, and he did a Bill Cosby impression. <laughs> and they thought it was hilarious, and they're like, "Oh, good, he's funny." Oh, wow. um, and, and by the way, Carrie always read *The Princess Bride* when he he was thirteen, and it was one of his favorite books. Wow! So he knew this was a big deal. Yeah, he knew that this was important, and he was terrified because he wasn't a big star. He'd mm-hmm. been in a couple of movies, but this is being Errol Flynn. This is being Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Yeah, and he's got to carry the film, mm-hmm. and he's amazing. He is amazing. Yeah, and. My God, is he a beautiful man? Like just he is from just the shots they have. His hair is perfect, perfect length to come just over his eyes. Like all of it is done in a way that evokes the old school yep. type of fairy tale romances. Yeah, the swashbuckling, all that kind of stuff. And you, he's a farm boy, and you know that you. And this is so interesting about the film. Things are presented to you, and you don't you don't even question. Nope. Like you're like, where's her parents? Nope. Why is he the farm boy for her place? Like, what is that all about? Like, is every house assigned a farm boy? Like, what is this all about? So you see it all progress through the thing. And you don't question it because you just want it. You just immediately buy this relationship. And they don't spend a lot of time falling in love. No. Nope. Steve, there's, there's just like 12 exchanges. lines. Yeah, it's just exchanges. And he's saying the same line over and over again. Yeah. She's the one saying different lines. And it's looks. And that's yep. where the real acting comes. Especially watching it, having watched it again in the theater now. There's so much power in just the look and the oh, acting yeah. they're doing. Robin Wright. And Robin Wright, you know, she's 19. Yeah. She had been on a soap opera, Santa Barbara. Oh. She's, put, she's putting, that was all she had done. And wow. she's putting this English accent on. And she has so much power on screen. Mm-hmm. And so much. And the connection between the two of them is instant. Yeah. And for those of you out there interested in screenwriting, like I said, I love the book. Read this chapter in the book and then watch the film. And you will see... All of the things you're asking about, the parents and yeah. the relationship and all those details, they're in the book. Oh, how interesting. And they're great. Right. And they shouldn't be in the movie. And William Goldman wrote the book and also wrote the screenplay. Wow. And this is why he's a great screenwriter is he understands like, oh, we only need 12 lines yeah. and looks. And that will do everything that I, he did really well in the book. Now we're going to do it in just these moments. And all he says, you say, whatever she asks him to do, all he says is, as you wish. Yeah. That day, she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. And even more amazing was the day she realized she truly loved him back. And then we know that they're in love, and they're just about to kiss. And what happens? <laughs> Fred Savage is, Grandpa, is this a kissing book? Don't tell me this is a kissing book. Which, first of all, my son has already done those things. <laughs> and second of all, it establishes this thing that we're going to do all the time, which is we're going to cut out of yeah. the story yeah. and have discussion of the story with Grandpa and Fred Savage. And this is what makes the film so unique. Absolutely. Because it's able to create this kind of uh, love story occurring between uh, Fred Savage and Peter Falk as right. the love story is happening in the movie. Right. So that when the end happens, we've found like this connection in both worlds. Yep. You know, it's absolutely really right. It's yes. Really that was a really good way to put it. Yeah. And uh, we go back to the story and Wesley's going to go off to find his fortune because he doesn't he can't just be a farm boy and marry yeah. Buttercup. Because he wants to marry her. Right? Yeah. He wants to marry her. And she's worried that he won't come back. And he introduced this. I like, no, this is true love. So, of course, I'll come back. Yeah. And that's a lot of what this it's funny that this movie has this idea of true love, but also throughout the film is going to talk about 
things not being fair in yeah. the real world. And it's kind of going to do both. Yeah. Um, and he goes off and instantly as he goes off, we hear that the ship that he was on was attacked by the dread pirate Roberts and Wesley is dead. And Buttercup says, I will never love again. Yeah. Yeah. She didn't eat or sleep for days. Yeah. Now is it, it's Wesley, right? With a T. Westley. Isn't that yes. how they say I it? Think that, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Okay. I want to make sure because this bothered me for years. Um, yeah, I don't know. Now, I, now we should we should we should look up exactly how it's spelled on IMDb. <laughs> so as we continue, John will be looking up how yeah, it's sure. spelled. I just um, feel like that's how they say it in the movie. And, and I, Westley. It, yeah, it bothered me it's for just, years. It's the British. Yeah. Oh, maybe it's that. Maybe yeah. there is no T, and they're just pronouncing. No, it I actually don't way. know. Not, okay. not not being someone who can spell. Uh, yeah, so it is Wesley with a T, yes. Wesley. Wesley. All right, I'm going to work very hard throughout the rest of the podcast to emphasize <laughs> the T within Wesley's name. I means something, too. But all right, yes. Okay. Um, so it's five years later. There's a big announcement. Out walks the prince, Chris Sarandon. My people. Yes. I think he has a hard job in this movie. Okay. Because he has to balance. He's right on the edge oh, all the time. camp. Of, of camp yes and silliness yeah and also being sort of elegant and mm -hmm. it's it's and he does it perfectly because he has the perfect voice for it yeah you know and we 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 haven't done dog day afternoon yet but he's such an integral yeah. part of that film and i don't i only know chris Sarandon from a few things like child's right. play right uh so something like this is what i always remember him from and that voice he he affects is really well done you know love her as i loved her you know yeah. those kinds of things that he does convey a king type of approach but not so much so that it becomes farce or ridiculous and it is you believe him because you need a good actor that can convey this right and so you as the audience believe him because he's going to be our main villain and so to see what he's doing you have to invest that he believes that he is telling the truth with his performance well and he's walking the line that i think the movie walks which is we are in this world yeah and we're also no, laughing right, at not, the world a little bit like exactly. we know we're not supposed to take this 100% seriously right. except when we do it's a very interesting thing this movie's gonna do yeah. so he says I'm gonna marry Princess Buttercup and out she comes she's best in a beautiful dress looking very sad because we know that she of course still loves Wesley right um, and then she jumps on her horse it's the only thing she loves to do she goes out riding and we run into our three kidnappers yes we are but Poor lost circus performers. Is there a village nearby? Where would you like to start? Would you like to go tall to short or short to <laughs> no, tall? Short to tall. So we're gonna start with Wallace Shawn. Wallace Shawn. Um, this is inspired. I mean, they're all inspired casting, yeah. but the book, this is the Sicilian. Like if you read the book, this is like the mobster. Yeah. That's who the character is. There's nothing remotely Sicilian about Wallace Shawn. Right. Wallace Shawn, a brilliant intellectual, a playwright, my dinner with Andre. Like yeah. he is this neurotic Jewish <laughs> New York guy with a weird, uh, lisp, lispy so voice, yeah. yep. strange sound. Yeah. And he is so great and so funny. Mm -hmm. And he was terrified throughout this entire movie. Yeah, we, when we watched the uh, movie, they had a little intro with uh, Mankiewicz from TCM talking to Reiner. And Reiner said that Danny DeVito had turned it down or was too busy or something didn't work out, that they didn't bring Danny DeVito. And so Wallace was constantly on set, afraid that he was going to be fired by Rob Reiner, at least in the initial part of the shooting. Right. Uh, and then eventually settled in when Reiner told him that this is who he sounds. You sounds exactly like you in my mind. So just speak as you would speak. 
And this is a great, it's it a works. great direction is that, and, and this is something we're going to talk about throughout yeah. is that we talked about all these directors who are demanding and difficult and angry and mean and controlling. And that is not Rob Reiner. No, Rob Reiner is lovely and sweet and everyone has fun making the movie. Yep. And if you read, there's a, a, a book, uh, as you wish, which is Carrie Elwes's book, remembering the princess bride. And I actually listened to it, which I highly recommend because if you listen to it, it's all the interviews with the people. And therefore the voices are done by Rob Reiner and Robin Wright and Billy Crystal and all the cast wow. are doing all their telling their stories of the movie. Holy crap. And if you wanted to listen to it, I would recommend doing it with our good friends at audible. Boom. Um, audible is of course the largest place to listen to audio books i've been a subscriber for years and if you want to do it go to audible.com slash the cinephiles we'll give you a free book you can cancel at any time and subscribe and look at their incredible library including as you wish mm. and the thing that he and everybody else talks about is how warm and lovely rob reiner is to work with and how supportive is a director and the direction that you just mentioned yeah. is that wally sean is saying i'm not this person i'm not the, i can't do this i can't do this and rob reiner says no vicini sounds exactly like you yeah, that is who he is, and while Sean goes, oh, okay, and that yeah. makes sense to him. Um, he's inspired casting, and now if we move up in height, we get to Mandy Patinkin. Yes, like so, I knew a little Mandy Patinkin because I'd heard some of the Broadway albums, and Mandy had, and when I'd seen Yentl, which yeah. comes out before this, Mandy Patinkin has the voice of an angel. He's one of the greatest Broadway voices of all time, and so and playing all these really interested, complicated parts, but now you're going to cast him as this Spanish fencer. Yeah. How do you come up with that? It's fascinating, too, because Patinkin is not Spanish. No. In any way, shape, or form. He's dark. Right. But it's one of these things that, like, if you're going to cast a character like this, you got to find the right actor. If you're not going to find a Latino actor or a Spanish actor, you got to find the right actor. And Patinkin, in no way did I think that guy was not Spanish when I saw it the first time I saw it. Oh, yeah. And that's what's so amazing about him. Like, in no way... Like, when I saw Scarface, I knew Pacino because I'd seen Godfather. Right. And he was not... I knew it wasn't Latino. But uh, with Matinka, because I'd never seen him before, I had no idea. And his accent is spot on. His mannerisms are spot on. Yeah. His whole frustration of certain situations is very reminiscent of Latinos that I've grown sure. up with in my family or that I, there are moments that I've been this way too. And so for me, he is my favorite character in the movie. He is my absolute favorite character in the movie for, no, for so many reasons, uh, but certainly that. And he does such a fantastic portrayal of this guy because once again, he walks the line of the hubris of a Spaniard right. combined with the vulnerable insecurity of a Spaniard that is always covered up by the hubris. And it's so, it's, both of them are endearing when they appear throughout the whole film. And, and he sides. does this other thing, which watching this time was really interesting to watch. Is like he's not that smart, no, and he's happy. This is this is the sign of great actors to me. Is that they under they're happy, kind of having uh -huh. the humor be about them. Yes, you know, like watching him try to count and watching him like his way his brain processes. Right, is not he he operates at a different speed. I think than yeah. I don't know if I would say... I want to take that back a little bit. I don't think... I would say he's not smart. I would say he doesn't think he's smart. He doesn't know he's smart. But I think he is smart. He doesn't know he's smart. He's the one that comes up with... He, uh, 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 going and finding the man in black. Right. He's the one that comes up with these things that motivates the story to go along in a lot of spots. But he doesn't think he's being smart. Right. That's the thing about yeah. him, which I enjoy. Well, and he's because aware... Of, makes him noble. He's aware of his limitations. Yes. He's like, well, I can't figure these things out. Right. And because, because you know, one of the things that uh, Vicini says is, in order to be a swordsman, you must have studied. Right. And he has certainly studied. Yes. Um, all right. We've reached the height. Yes. Um, I have things to say about Andre the Giant, Please but my... Ahead. No. I'm going to defer to you. <laughs> 
Because why? Because you're the wrestling guy, right? Your relationship to him has got to be oh yeah. go way back. It's decades, yeah. Uh, because like when you start when I started watching wrestling in the late seventies, early eighties, he was just so big. He was so big, not just physically. Right. As a presence in professional wrestling. Whenever she, he showed up, you just didn't think it was possible for him to be beat. You know? And so when they start, when wrestling, World Wrestling Federation took off and Hulk Hogan really like brought them to the forefront and made right. them mainstream and popular, the big guy who had been carrying it for years, Andre the Giant, on that side, not Ric Flair was, on a, was in another federation, Andre the Giant was carrying WWF for a long time. He would go through Europe, he'd go to in Japan, he would fight all over the world. And this is a man who was French, and he he has an incredible life. Uh, if you want to go and research his life, read his read the the things about his body. Like his his uh, parents were friends with this poet or writer that I can't remember the name. Samuel Beckett. Samuel Beckett. Yes, and he, he yeah. Beckett would take him to school because Beckett had a car big enough without a without a a, a roof. Or, so because so, he's like six foot tall at yeah, like nine huge, years old or something. Yeah, and convertible to take him to school. He's the only one that can take him to school because he's so massive. And yeah. so all this stuff is going on. And, and Andre is an incredibly interesting guy, very strong guy. Also kind of tragic in the end when he died because he died at his father's funeral. Oh, I didn't know yes. that. Yes. He oh went to his God. father's funeral in France. He died either that night or the next morning from oh, wow. either grief and drinking on his own physical problems from being, you know, the big size he was. But all of that could not have helped. His father dying could not have helped yeah. him in that situation. So oh, wow. It was, and they found him either the next morning or that night. They found him just dead in his, in his oh, suit. Wow. In his bed. That's I know. I never heard that. Yeah, and so, but he has an incredible story. Just an incredible story, and you know, it, it, everything led up to him fighting uh, Hulk Hogan in WrestleMania right. three. That's the one that everyone talks about because no one thought anyone could pick up Andre the Giant and body slam him, and Hogan did it. So it was such a huge thing. So to see him, and, and wrestlers didn't really go into mainstream movies at this time right. uh, for success, in successful ways until Andre the Giant. I mean, you have Luca Brasi, but he wasn't a really well-known wrestler. And you had well, I didn't know he was a wrestler. Yeah, he was a professional yeah. wrestler, the, the actor who played Luca Brasi. And also in Requiem for a Dream, Anthony Quinn, right. there's a couple of other people who were professional wrestlers at the time in the 50s and 60s who were in that movie. Right. But this is something else. And... The one thing about Andre, Andre was always a face, and then he'd become a heel. But he was always be- he was always a face, and so to see him kind of at this time after he'd had his run as a heel to kind of doing this movie at this time, kind of coming back to being a face, which is a good guy character, it was so great, you know. So I, I very little to add, but I'll add, the two yeah. things I'll add to that are the stories that I heard about him, in addition to just the size of him and yeah. the size of his hands and the amount that he could consume both food wise yes. and alcohol wise, yes, beer wise. Yeah. Yeah. And, or, or just like drink an entire bottle of, you know, brandy or something, you know, like, like nothing, like nothing. But the biggest thing that I, I got the sense of, of listening to everyone talk about him is he was the most beloved person yes. on the set is that yes. everybody, he was the kindest, gentlest, warmest, and that the most affected that every single person Wallace Shawn said stories about him Robin Wright Carrie Owens Mandy Patinkin all said like he it was the most affecting and the biggest joy was to get to know him mm-hmm. over the months of shooting this film and, and, and William Goldman by the way yeah. that's who he wanted when he wrote it wow. because he was a huge wrestling fan and he would go to see Andre the Giant at Madison Square Garden and knew who he was yeah. and he wanted him from the beginning there's a brief moment I think when maybe Norman Jewison or something was talking about doing it that they were going to get Arnold to be oh, to be Fezzik interesting um, but that didn't happen no. um, and, uh, and everyone did this impression 
auditions, so I'll probably do it too, was that, is that Rob auditioned him with one scene and that apparently Andre kind of, and Rob said, well, do you want to do it? And he says, yeah, I'll do it, boss. And that's what he <laughs> called everyone boss. And that, and then he, Andre didn't really get that, no, he had to do more than that one scene and right. that this was going to take, you know, weeks and weeks. And what Rob did was record every single one of his lines on a cassette. So Andre, whose English wasn't great, could listen to him in Rob Reiner's inflection over and over and over again. And so what we're hearing is Andre the Giant's interpretation of Rob Reiner delivering all of Fezzik's lines. Oh, wow. Yeah. I want to tell you one last story. Yes, please. With Andre the Giant. This is something Hulk Hogan talked about in his documentary about him. Andre the Giant was a great practical joker as well, or he was fascinated by his size. He was at times aware, like he was big, but he was also in, like, it was almost like he was outside of himself watching himself do stuff. And the way he used to, to mess with Hogan, with Hulk Hogan, is when they would fight in Japan because it's such a, you know, things are small in that country. Right. They didn't have beds for him or toilets. He could not use a Japanese toilet when he was in Japan. So he would have to lay papers, newspapers out on the bed and take a shit on the bed. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. Now, this is a massive mess. I was going to say. So he would, he would trick Hogan to come down and help him in the room. He's like, hey, I can't get this. Will you come down and help me? Like, I can't reach this. Or it's like, it's too stuck. My hand's too big, blah, blah, blah. Every time he would trick Hogan in some way, almost like B.A. Baracus, he would trick him into coming into his room so he could show him the piles of shit that he did on the newspaper in the bed. Just because he was like, he just thought it was hilarious. He just thought it was so funny that this is what he would have to do in order to uh, live his life, in order to wow. exist in Japan. And he was there all the time wrestling. So yeah. it's just fascinating. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine what his life was like. Yeah, it's yeah. intense. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old. And this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, yeah, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. So we have our three kidnappers. Yes. They kidnap the princess. We're heading off to this boat. And this is when we start to get to know the characters and we start to find out that they're doing this to set up Gilder. Yes. That they want. So there's Florin, which is the country that we're in, which of course is fictitious, unless you believe that S. Morganston really existed. <laughs> and there's Gilder, which is their traditional enemy. And we're going to frame them for this because somebody wants to start a war. And we start to meet these two characters, these these three characters. Yeah. And uh, you immediately start to love Inigo and yeah. Fezzik. Yeah. Chemistry well, is so important in film, yeah. man. And those three have just fantastic chemistry. And once again, this is another situation where I would say Inigo is smart. Here's uh, Vecini yelling at both of them. You friendless 
brainless, helpless, hopeless. Do you want me to send you back to where you were? Unemployed in Greenland? How brilliant is it to have the, the smallest guy just berating both of them? Uh, one more skilled than him and one obviously physically could throw him 30 yards or something. Right. But it's so great to have him be the one that makes them like kind of shut up. But what's smart about Inigo is he has an affection for his friend. He knows how to get his friend out of it. Mm-hmm. It walks over and starts doing the rhyming game with him to kind of get him back to normal because he had been hurt by what Vicini had said to him. And Vicini, he can fuss. Fuss, fuss. Think you like to scream at us? Probably he means no harm. He's very, very short on charm. And this is this interesting thing this movie does, which is these are we're kind of introduced to these characters yeah. as the bad guys. Right. And and Wallace Shawn is clearly Vizzini's a horrible person. And because he abuses them so relentlessly, right. and then because they have the rhyming game. Mm-hmm. We like him. Yes, immediately. Immediately, we just like these guys. Um, so they're off sailing on the boat, and uh, Indigo keeps looking back, and it would be because maybe someone's followed us, and that would be... That would be inconceivable. Yes. The, best, <laughs> the, the greatest line. <laughs> um, and, and, I lo- and I love, like, again, he looks back again, and says, are you sure no one can follow us? And Vicini gives this great long answer of why, and then says, out of curiosity, why do you ask? Suddenly, <laughs> I just happened to look behind us, and something is there. And I love I love uh, Manny Patinkin's accent yes. and the way he delivers these lines because I just look back and that suddenly there is something dead. <laughs> so good. And then the princess takes that uh, distraction to try to escape, jumps off the boat, starts swimming out to sea, and gets pretty far away from the boat actually, yep. like twenty or thirty feet. And then uh, the, uh, Bassini makes them kind of steer the boat to the left so they can catch up the princess. And the whole time he's talking to the princess, and you hear this sound. It's yep. like primal sound that princess is the sound of the shrieking eels yes yes um and you know these are not expensive special effects no no but you don't want that in a film like this right well this is but again this is like this movie has been lost there is no princess bride right beam i mean not that any people were making this movie all the time but like everything has to be really big yeah and this isn't big and that's part of its joy and just as things are getting kind of stressful and as i was worrying about my son sitting next to me in the movie theater what do we do we cut out again yeah because grandpa says she doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time <laughs> and fred savage is going what what are you talking about yeah. it's like well i'm saying because you look kind of nervous and there's a great shot of him clutching his yes. bed sheets yeah, and perfect. slowly unclutching it's great and i love what he says i was concerned but that's not it's, the it's, same it's thing different thing <laughs> different thing which i you know it's funny because this is something you've said over and over again and i have too which is that it's funny watching movies at different times in your life yeah and now i'm the parent now I spend all this time reading to my son, yeah. worrying. You know, we've been reading Harry Potter books. Oh. And there's some parts in those. We've done the first two. Mm-hmm. And there's some parts where it gets pretty scary. Yeah. And so I'm checking in with my son just like Grandpa's checking in with Fred Savage. Yeah. Like, this, will get, this is going to be okay. Even before going to see the movie, I gave him little warnings about the things that might be scary and what they were. That was going to be okay. Yeah. You know, because that's, that's now who. Now I'm Grandpa. Yeah. Or at least Dad. Um <laughs> We rescue the princess, uh, and the, the, the other ship is right on top of, almost right on top of them. And by the way, this is all shot in a tank. That's a model ship with forced perspective. It's all very small, and it yeah. looks like it's shot on a tank. Yeah. 
and it's fine. Yeah, of course. And anyway, now we're heading to the Cliffs of Insanity. One of my favorite names in the whole film. I laugh every time it's said in the film. It is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get off of the boat and we put on this weird harness onto Andre the Giant, strap all three people on, and he starts climbing up the cliffs. Great effect, by the way. It's done very well. It's so believable what you're watching. You know, you can't tell the from the from a distance. Obviously, those are like dolls, and he's being yanked up some kind of harness, and he's just made it seem like he's climbing up the rope. But it looks so believable. Yeah, you know, and the, some of it's shot on a real location, which is real cliffs in mm-hmm. England. So almost this whole, the, basically ninety nine point nine percent of this movie shot in England. Yeah, and uh, the, there is a real location that's not Andre the Giant. It's a big stunt man with yeah. dolls strapped to him. Yeah, of course. Um, and the other stuff is done on a set, and they're on like a lift. And two two things about this. One thing is when they cast Andre the Giant, the big worry they had was can he deliver the lines because right. he has a heavy accent. The one thing they weren't worried about is can he do all the physical giant stuff? And it ended up that was a real problem because his back was out. He was in horrible pain throughout the whole process, yep. and he couldn't pick anybody up. And so they do have everyone. And then the other problem they had when they shot this part is that Wallace Shawn was desperately afraid of heights terrified and they're on like a forklift basically lifting them up 25 feet up in the air and wallace sean still thinks i'm going to be fired and so he can't show anyone that he's afraid of heights and he does tell andre the giant and andre just patted him on the head and said i will take care of you (laughs) and he would just pet him like a child (laughs) like a like a dog as they did the Euroke. You're okay. You're okay. Between takes. Amazing. And what's so funny is Wallace Shawn said, I don't think I could have gotten through that without him. It was so, to have this huge hand, it was made him feel so safe and comforted yeah. that he got through this going That's up fantastic. on this lift. Isn't that awesome? That's fantastic. I love it. Yeah. And right before, uh, and right after they start going on the mountain, this man in black jumps out of the uh, the boat and he starts climbing right up too. And I yeah. and, and the, the, his climbing is Somewhat ridiculous looking and awesome. Yeah. And okay. he's flying up. He's climbing the rope. And he's getting on us. Inconceivable. Well, that's the what? The second or third time we hear the word inconceivable. We're, we're, from we've we've had, had several times. Yeah. And, and now Wallace Shawn, his Vicini's choice here is to berate his giant. Yes. To insult I him. And scri- it is hilarious. We're supposed to be this colossus. You were this great legendary thing, and yet he gains. Well, I'm killing three people, and he got only himself. I do not accept excuses. I'm desperate to have to find myself a new giant, that's all. Don't say that, Vincini, please. You were supposed to be this... Colossus. Colossus. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a great word, Colossus. Well, this is, by the way, this is going to be one of the problem with putting this episode of The Cinephiles oh, together yeah. because I'm just going to want to put in the whole movie. Yeah, sure, sure. Because everything Wallace Shawn <laughs> says in this moment is awesome. It's very funny. It's really funny. Did I mention that your job was on the line? <laughs> There's just such a great delivery in his his voice. Well, and did I mention that your job was on the line is is one of the many examples of these sort of out of time kinds of yes, language yes. and the sense of humor where you go, oh, we're not that's what is this movie exactly? Yeah. Because we're not a hundred percent in this world of this time because Did I make it clear that your job is at stake? <laughs> we make it to the top of the cliffs of insanity and and they decide, of course, to Cut the rope. Yes. And it's really very well built. The good music build. The rope cuts. The rope slides through and they look down and he's still hanging on to the yeah. thing. And, and what does Vizzini say? He didn't fall? Inconceivable. And just the beautiful uh, indigo. You keep using that word. 
I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> yeah. So great. <laughs> you didn't like my accent there, you did can- you? <laughs> because you make him deeper and he's not deep. I couldn't do, I he's, couldn't, he's, yeah. You keep using that word. He's more, it's, it's, it's a questioning, right? You're it's right. A, no, you're right. No, but it's a questioning. That's what he's doing. Is like, he's, li- he's literally trying to understand why Bassini's using that word, which is what's so great about it. It's well, this just, is what I mean by, and whether or not we say smart yeah. or not smart, is that he's processing, the yes. wheels are processing. Yes. He Always. doesn't just go, you're an idiot. Right. He goes... Uh, maybe it's you keep using that word. <laughs> I don't think it means what you think it means. And he's he's almost trying to help him. In a yeah, way. yeah, it's so yeah. great. Um, and what makes him endearing? And then uh, Vicini gives his orders. Right. Fezzik, you grab the girl. You stay here. If he falls, great. If not, the sword. Yes. And there's where we hear the first time where uh, Indigo says, "I'll do him. I'll do him left-handed. <laughs> if not, it's over too quickly." Yeah. Um, and then he goes. Have it your way. I love mm-hmm. that. There's all those little moments of Vicini that are just brilliant. Wallace Shawn does. Uh, He's like, oh, have it your way. Yeah. You know, it's brilliant. And uh, and now we're on the top. Indigo's on the top of the cliff yeah. waiting for the guy to get to the top. He doesn't like waiting. No. And he's, he says it. He's very impatient. Well, we'll lisp- listen, Latinos are impatient people. I'll tell you right now. We just want what we want. We want it. And so I love this moment because it's so true. And he's, he, he comes up with these. Because at first he's trying to be like, uh, I don't suppose you could like he's trying to be nice to him, but it's to get what he wants eventually. Essentially, but then eventually he says like, "Well, throw the rope down." So I give you my word as a Spaniard, and he says, "Oh no, no, no! I've trusted. I've never. Uh, I've known too many Spaniards, which is brilliant." And then finally, he's mentioned. This is the first time he mentions his father. Yeah, and it's brilliant. It's the perfect time to mention it. And Rob Reiner does the camera perfectly yes. close up. Yes, I swear on the soul of my father, Domingo Montoya. You will reach the top alive. Throw me the robe. It's yeah. just brilliant. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned politeness. Yeah. One of the keys to the scene is their politeness. Yes. Is that they're both being very. I don't want to bother you. Right. And then and then and then uh, the man in black on the on the cliff saying, you know, this is sort of difficult. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it, they're just being very polite to yes. each other. And then he throws the rope down. He helps him up, and and the man in black is immediately getting ready to the sword. And again, politeness. No, no, no. You take a rest. Yeah. Get ready. And they sit down, and now Indigo tells the story of his father, the sword, and the six finger. And that's a master actor, man. In, amidst all this storybook fantasy ridiculousness, in a way, here comes the heart. Yeah. Here comes the heart. And is this why he's my favorite? He is the heart of the movie. The romance is the romance and true love and all. That's beautiful, obviously. But the heart, the weight of the movie, the emotional resonance of the movie is his journey. No question about it. I, I totally agree. I love Wesley. Yeah. Uh, he's a great, great character. Sure. I love him. Sure. But it, it, part of it's the, you know, the swordsmanship and all that other stuff. Yeah. Indigo is great. Yeah. And this is one of the interesting things. This is one of those cases where the book is great. Because in the book, you see the whole story of him and his father oh. and the six feet, six feet. I mean, you go through the wow. whole thing. And you go through the whole story of him studying fencing right. and the journeys he went on. And none of that gets told to the man in black in the book because you just see it all. Yeah. And the brilliance of going, no, this is going to be a fairly short story I'm going to tell to the man in black is so dramatic in a film in a way that it isn't in a book and vice versa. And what does he say at the end of the story? Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And at first, when Mandy Patinkin read the script, he said, and saw what happens with this line, he's like, that is so silly. Yeah. And then, of course, this is, it's, it's the most famous line in the film. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is such a huge thing. Mm-hmm. But I love that he 
immediately switches. And that's what's the brilliance of this scene, is that he has this incredibly poetic, noble moment of, yeah. of this heartbreaking thing that he's going to say. And you, you start to cheer for him. And then he says... But it's been 20 years. I've started to lose faith. Yeah. You know? So it's completely, yeah. it's just a great comedic moment to, to, to uh, counter what's happening. What this other nobility in him is yeah. this realistic situation too, this realism to the situation that is frustrating him, which I love. Well, and we really like this guy. Yeah. And this is the thing. It was very interesting because they stand up there about the duel. And my son got a little worried when we were watching it today. Yeah. And he leaned into me. He said, which one of them dies? Ah, yeah. And that's what's doing so well in the movie because they stand up and Indigo says, You seem a decent fellow. I hate to kill you. You seem a decent fellow. I hate to die. <laughs> and then we go into what is written in the script was written as the greatest sword fight ever filmed. Wow. So that's a lot of pressure when you set out to do the greatest sword fight ever filmed. Right. And it is, in my opinion one of the greatest sure. sword fight ever Agreed. filmed. I, I'm not going to say, like, if I were on a top 10 show, would I put this at my top 10? Right. I don't know. But it, it would be in my list. That would be There's in my no, top 10. Yeah. And uh, so we got to talk about sword fight a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, so first of all, they, uh, you know, when we, we did The Matrix, we talked about how long they had to train to do that. This is the same thing. It was, I think Mandy Patinkin trained eight months. Yeah. Carrie always trained six months. And the people they trained with are... Peter Diamond and Bob Anderson. Okay. Bob Anderson, he doubled Errol Flynn. Yeah. He doubled Darth Vader. Wow. He did the Darth Vader sword fights. Not only that, Highlander he choreographed. He chore and he was even choreographing and being Viggo Mortensen's coach in Lord of the Rings. That's 50 years Good of God. sword choreography. That's a lot. Peter Diamond, he's the Tuscan Raider that that shakes his weapon over Luke Skywalker. <laughs> Yeah, Peter yeah. Diamond is climbing on the uh, truck in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Peter Diamond also did some of Darth Vader's sword work. Yeah. Like, these are two of the greatest. I mean, you go back to Errol Flynn, from Errol Flynn through Star Wars, Highlander, Lord of the Rings. Like, this is, you just can't get better right. than that pedigree. And not only did they have to teach these two guys who had zero, zero fencing experience yeah. how to fence, they had to teach them how to fence left-handed and right-handed. That is really, really hard. Which comes into play. Yeah. And, and, and the, so they trained all this time every single day. In addition to eight months before they started their training, every single day in between takes, they are practicing, 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 practicing mm -hmm. to do the sword fight. And then, you know, normally when we do this uh, podcast, I try to tell the behind the scenes stories when they happen in the film. And now I'm not going to do that because there's something that happened for, that involves scenes later on okay. but affected this, okay. which is... Andre the Giant had a big ATV he used to drive around in, and he drove ATVs on his farm in France, and he was very comfortable with it, and he kept pushing Carrie Elway's, try out the ATV, <laughs> try out, try out, try out. And he's like, no, 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 I don't need to. And finally, he said, come on, it'll be fun. And Carrie Elway's, having no experience driving these things at all, hops on what has to be like a ginormous one sure. to carry Andre the Giant around, drives a little way, loses control, jams his big toe between the clutch and the pedal, Ouch. and Bends it 90 degrees, breaking it. Holy fuck. Yeah, like literally look down at your toe and it's pointing at a 90 degree angle away from the rest of your foot. Wow. He tries to lie about it. Says, don't tell Rob, don't tell Rob, because he's like, I'm going to be fired. This is right. the most important job I've ever had. I've just, I have to do the sword fight. I fucked everything up. Don't tell Rob. Gets the whole cast to conspire not to tell him. And it's actually in the scenes where he and Buttercup are running towards the fire swamp. 
That's when this actually happened. But this happened before, a month before the sword fight. Okay. So when we get to the scene in the firestorm, we'll talk about what he was actually doing to get away yeah. with this. But there was a time where he could barely walk. Wow. Before having to shoot this thing, he did get back to health, fortunately. Right. But it's like he practiced the sword fight sitting down for three, four weeks. Wow. Because he couldn't walk. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. The sword fight. They practice a lot. We got that point. We talked about how sword fights tell stories. And this one tells such a great story because the first moment is them testing each other out. Again. And there's this great moment where they do a little tink, tink, swish. And Mandy looks at the man in black and smiles because he's like, oh, you can fence. get the feeling of I've waited so long for someone who could do this. Yes. And as they're fighting back and forth, they're so you you know they know it so well because they can do dialogue. Yeah. You're using Bonetti's defense against me, huh? I thought it fitting considering the rocky terrain. Naturally. You must expect me to attack with Capafero. Naturally. But I find that Tibble cancels out Capafero. Don't you? Which, by the way, those are real swordsmen. Capafal. Capaf- yeah. Those are actual books on fen- from great fencers throughout history. <laughs> they are not bullshit. Those are the wow. real experts of fencing with all these. And those are real defenses. Like Goldman did the research on those things. Yeah. Up and down the hills. And one other thing that happened when they were practicing doing the choreography, they get very close to the shoot, like they're two weeks away. And as they practice, you get faster and faster and faster. Yeah. By the time they presented to Rob, okay, here is the choreography, it had shrunk from four minutes down to a minute and a half. Because they were so fast. Right. And Rob said, that's not enough. And they went, oh, shit. And like in the last two weeks, they added an extra minute and a half of stuff. It took eight months to get up that first minute and a half and two weeks to the next minute and a half. And they're going up and down levels. And that's really hard to do all the fencing, give dialogue, and go up an uneven surface. They get to the, to the edge. Mandy Patinkin's a little bit in trouble. And he says, I admit it, you are better than I am. Then why are you smiling? Because I know something you don't know. And what is that? I am not left-handed. I can remember being in the theater. Yeah. Edge smiling. Yeah. And now it's starting to look like the man in black's in trouble. Pinned against the wall, the wall's crumbling, we're on the cliff. You're amazing. I ought to be after 20 years. There's something I ought to tell you. Tell me. I'm not left-handed either. Yeah. And now now he starts pushing back and does an immediate disarm. The sword goes straight up in the air. Yeah. And then wait, 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 catch it. Yeah. Which, of course, is there's a crewman up above on a rafter who catches one sword and drops another right into his hand. (laughs) Um, And then then it gets disarmed again, thrown down. We do this. This is where it gets a little bit silly. I think it's brilliant. The The whole, uh, yeah, the bars. Yeah, there's a a gymnastics (laughs) high bar there. Uh, And Inigo kind of swings down, grabs his sword. And then the man in black throws his sword. Yeah. Jumps on, does the full swing over, does a flip, lands, picks up his sword as smooth as can be. And I love the drum roll before he starts. Yes. It's just, it just yes. totally adds the element of yes. the, the, full, the ridiculous of it. And those cool. moments are the only moments that are stuntmen. Every, this is, oh, wow. The whole sword fight is them That's except great. for the little acrobatic moments. And I love this exchange when he it's, adds more humor to the, to the film and also to their relationship as characters which we'll find out later when they come back together because he says to him you know, 
who are you? And he says, you know, I'm no one of consequence. And he says, I must know. Get used to disappointments. <laughs> Okay. I love the okay. <laughs> the okay is brilliant. The okay is everything. The okay is improv. Oh, good. Because the okay is it's Mandy. so brilliant. Yeah. It's so brilliant. It is so great. Because yeah. that's his character. It's yes. just the struggle. I love Because get used He's to this. He's not even hurt. He's not even hurt. He's more All like, right. okay. That's if you say so. Um, this last bit of swordsmanship between the two of them is crazy. Yeah. And this is the thing where me being the kind of geek that I am, I've rewound, I've slow-moed, I've oh, watched wow. it. Oh, yeah. Wow. There's a moment in it. So, so um Inigo does a hand exchange where he switches from left hand to right hand yeah. and back, which is really good. He's spinning around and there's kind of between the legs and a jump over yes. thing, which is really hard. Then there's a moment where uh, Carrie Elways, it's almost invisible. It happens so fast, throws the sword from his right hand up to his left hand, or it might yeah. be his left hand up to his right hand. Yeah. And it's so between blocks, like blocks with his left, then throws it up to his right and blocks with his right. And it's, it's so smooth and elegant. It's yeah. an amazing little bit of trickery you know that's just so you know that's only comes with hours and hours thousands of hours of practicing that one little silly thing yeah and then the very end i don't actually quite oh and there's also one moment by the way there are two moments in i don't love one is there's a repeated action mm -hmm. which is he uh mandy patinkin, patinkin backs up to sort of a posy moment mm -hmm. and it sort of stops and then it starts again and you see him go through that exact motion again oh wow okay. yeah so that bugs me a little bit and the final spinning around yeah. that he can't block that eh, bugs me a little bit okay but those are the, that's probably what keeps it from being my favorite sword fight of all time. Fair, fair. But uh, Inigo gets disarmed. Yes. And then thinks he's going to die. Yes. Kill me quickly. Kill me quickly. I would soon destroy a stained glass window as an artist like yourself. However, since I can't have you following me either. And, and this is, and it solves the problem that my son had. Yep. Which one of these guys is going to die? Answer, neither. Yeah. Because we love them both. Yeah. So he knocks him out. Yeah. Or as you conveniently said to your son, he's just asleep. He's just asleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's Such hard to explain. Idea. It's hard to explain knock, knocking something out. Really? Plus, you're, while you're in, okay. the, in the middle of a movie in the dark, asleep was easier. That's fair. Yeah. And uh, how does Vizzini feel about this? Inconceivable. Inconceivable. Yes. Um, so now he's going to have Fezzik kill him. Yep. Your way. <laughs> right. It's my way. Yeah. So he gives him these instructions. Get a big rock. Wait here. When he, his head appears, hit him with the rock. That way it's not very sportsmanlike. <laughs> here's a question. Do you understand everything Andre the Giant said? Yeah. If you've seen it the first time, do you think you did? I did the first time. Yeah. Everything. Uh, I had no problems understanding him. I, 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 it's one where I wonder. I, of but, course, I understand him now. But it's also, also because I was, uh, my parents had thick Spanish accents. And not that mm, Andre mm. is Spanish, but he's European, he's French. My mind had been trained to try to understand people with accents speaking English since birth. Right. So for me, it was easy to understand. Right. So Wesley's coming up the hill. Mm -hmm. On Just as he comes around the corner, Andre throws the rock, which explodes. Such a it's, great It's a effect. good sound effect. Um, and, and startles Wesley. But he doesn't want to hit him with the rock. No. And I love their exchange. This is not sportsmanlike. So what happens now? We face each other as God intended. Sportsmanlike. No tricks, no weapons. Skill again, skill along. You mean you'll put down your rock and I'll put down my sword and we'll try and kill each other like civilized people? <laughs> yes. And he says, you know, I feel like you've got a bit of an advantage or whatever. In hand fighting, <laughs> yeah. In hand fighting, yeah. Yeah. And this the, but this is interesting too, Steve, because this is a nice change in, in Fezzik's character because Fezzik initially is, you know, he, he can be 
browbeaten by Vecini. He can, he's not considered intelligent, but he very much commands that scene with with uh, the man in black with Wesley because he says to him, "I didn't have to miss. Right? I could kill you now if you like." Like there's there's not that sense of stupidity to him in those moments. He's very in command of what's happening. So he has this gear in him, but this what Vizzini's done is played to both their insecurities, which is why he keeps Montoya, Inigo, and and uh, Fezzik under his thumb because he knows how to play them yeah. as a good leader should. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and you know this is the the there's a difference between intelligence and wisdom and there's a difference between intelligence and good and evil. Yes. Is that the big thing about Fezzik is he's a good guy. Yeah, he's a good guy. They don't want to be bad guys. They are naturally good guys. Just their circumstances, the only jobs they can find. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough to get work as a giant. (laughs) I'm sure it's tough to get work as an event seeking the Spaniard. (laughs) (laughs) So I've heard. Um, And, uh, and by the way, this wrestling thing, yeah, this is one where I'll say this is better in the book. Oh, I don't love this. It's okay. Okay. You know, uh, and part of it is is that Andre Giant's in a lot of pain. So much oh, so that wow. like him carrying Wesley on his back, he couldn't do it. Oh, wow. So what's actually happening, if I understand it correctly, is they built a ramp behind Andre the Giant so that when he's moving forward and backwards, uh, Kerry always actually has his feet on something and is skittling back and forth behind oh. him. Oh. So he's not putting all his weight on Andre the Giant's Interesting. back. Interesting. Wow. That's what they said. I don't quite understand how it works throughout. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he was in a lot of pain. Um, All those wrestlers are, dude. It's brutal. It's a brutal job. Yeah. Uh, the man in black chokes him out. Yeah. And again, a great parting line. <laughs> Sleep well and dream of large women. Yes. Um, and off up the hill, he goes to fu- to discover Vicini. Who's waiting for him. Yeah. yeah. And Buttercup, he's put out a nice spread. Yeah, he has. Cheese and everything. Wine. Where did he get the cheese? <laughs> Listen. Where did he get the wine? Sicilians always travel with cheese and wine. I guess That goes so. without saying. I guess. My question is, before he knew that there was going to be a battle of the wits involving wine, yeah. why did he sit down and have wine poured or wine out? Who? Vicini? Vicini. I don't know. It's very strange. Yeah. Um, and again, <laughs> we have this setup of like, well, you bested my Spaniard. Yeah. I can't compete with you physically, but you can't compete with you me, me mentally. Right. And so we'll have a battle of the wits. Oh, my God. To the death. <laughs> and he so gives great. a nod. Plato, Socrates. <laughs> Aristotle. Aristotle. Morons. Morons. I just love that line. And it got a great laugh in the theater today. Yeah. So it great. is a funny movie. Uh, and we sit down. And even them, even him you don't hate. Because of these lines. Well, he's a bad person. He's a bad person, but he's... Oh, yeah, I adore him. He doesn't do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we sit down, and, he pu- and, and Wesley pulls out his vial. Inhale this, but do not touch. I smell nothing. What you do not smell is called Iocane powder. It is odorless, tasteless, dissolves instantly in liquid, and is among the more deadly poisons known to man. And he's going to put the, the poison in one glass of wine, and Vicini has to figure out which one it is, and then they will drink, and the winner lives, and the other one is dead. Right. And then we get Wallace Shawn's brain. Yeah. <laughs> this is where I go, I look, I love Danny DeVito. Mm-hmm. There's nobody, nobody could do this like Wallace Shawn. No, Danny has a harder edge to him. Yeah, than Wallace does. It's not that he's not the UK. Like you can see films like Renaissance Man and, and enjoy Danny, in, in in even when he's doing that uh, the character in Taxi, he's still 
endearing in a way. There's a lovableness to him, absolutely. Right. But he has a, a darker streak to him, a more oh, yeah. evil streak to him. And Wallace can't convey any of that, which is why you enjoy him as an evil guy. Even though he's an evil guy, you still enjoy him as endearing. because And you can buy this situation where he's just like doing this whole litany of reasons why he, he's already figured it out, you know, and, and, and he hasn't at all. <laughs> Well, it, it, but it is hilarious. Yes, and 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 the, part of what's making it hilarious, by the way, is Carrie Ellis's reaction shots. Yeah. are so good. He's just smirking, just watching, smirking, enjoying watching it. this guy yeah. go through this thing because he knows yeah. the way it goes. He's winning. And I would talk about what some of these things Wallace Shawn said, but I know I'm going to cut to it. Okay, so I'm going to give you Fine. Wallace Shawn. <laughs> you made your decision then? <laughs> Not remotely, because Iocane comes from Australia, as everyone knows. And Australia is entirely peopled with criminals. And criminals are used to having people not trust them as you are not trusted by me, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. Wait till I get going! Where was I? Australia. Yes, Australia. And you must have suspected I would have known the powder's origin, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You're just stalling now. You'd like to think that, wouldn't you? You've beaten my giant, which means you're exceptionally strong. So you could have put the poison in your own goblet, trusting on your strength to save you, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you've also bested my Spaniard, which means you must have studied. And in studying, you must have learned that man is mortal, so you would have put the poison as far from yourself as possible, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You're trying to trick me into giving away something. It won't work. It has worked! You've given everything away! I know where the poison is! Then make your choice. I will! And I choose... What in the world can that be? By the way, I use that line all the time with people. When they... Which one? The, when they start to get uh, into something and they start like... Be, they start going to this myriad of thoughts that are like broken, uh, run-on sentences... When they're done, I always go like, truly, you have a dizzying intellect. Like, I, I say it all the time. Like, the Wesley the line. Time. Yes. Yeah. Because I, I use, you know, you've fallen to one of the classic blunders. <laughs> the most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia. But only slightly less well known is this. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> this whole idea, though, Steve, once again, this idea of like, where are these lines coming from? Oh, yeah. Anachronistic. Land war in Asia. That's a Vietnam joke. Absolutely. That's, that's any number of things joke, right? Uh, Mongolia. Who knows what the joke they're making? Uh, clearly, it's a Vietnam joke. I mean, right. The book I came out like in 1973, yeah, and, so, and all this is in the book. Yeah, I feel like it's, it's uh, been a yeah. Good, yeah. Today, it could be an Afghanistan joke sure. just as easily. Sure. Um, but, but the yeah, it's, it's totally... Well, the whole thing is anachronistic. Yeah, which I love. Um, yeah, what Wallace Shawn does is just amazing. <laughs> um, and then... It climaxes with him saying, what in the world? And Wesley turns and looks, and um, and he switches the, the glasses, yeah. and then they drink, and there's a little, are you going to drink? Are you going to drink? The man in black drinks. Uh, Vizzini drinks, and then is mocking him, and that's where this line is. Yeah. And then the laughter, and then the death. Yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, Rob Reiner demonstrated how to do that. That was a Rob Reiner laugh, 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 die. Yeah. Um, it was very well done. Yeah. Um, and I realize something that I have done is that for those of you who haven't, been, haven't watched the movie, I have repeatedly given something away. And it brings up an important question. Is there any time watching this film that you as the audience watching it the first time don't know that the man in black is Wesley? 
Uh, as soon as he had the fight with, I remember knowing it was him as soon as they had the the sword fight. Yeah, because of the voice. Right. Right. Uh, Carrie always, even though he said he's only ever said as you wish. There's the timbre of his voice that sounds familiar, and so I knew it was him at that time. Well, there's also this thing about story structure where yeah, he the guy went off and died. And now this guy shows up. Right. How many characters in this movie are there going to be? Right. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like that's got to be the. And it's an interesting thing of where, you know, th- this is a fairy tale. Yeah. This is supposed to fulfill our expectations. Right. You know. And what's interesting, Steve, is you have to cast this correctly because these people have very limited screen time. So in that limited screen time, you have to be immediately attached to them. Yeah. Uh, with good or evil. You have to be immediately attached to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing we... Because ha- they get discarded throughout the movie. And exactly. Back. And then they come back. Yeah. One thing that we haven't mentioned is that as we leave, leave each of these battles, who was showing up at the previous yes. battle but Prince Humperdinck, the greatest hunter in all the land. What a great name. And I love this. You know, with Humperdinck, there's this moment <laughs> where he is... You know, standing in their footprints, figuring out the fencing. Ah, oh, yeah. they were both masters. You know, and then and then we get to um, the uh, battle with the giants. Yeah. Someone has beaten a giant. Someone has bested a giant. Yeah, and he's continually framing this as, oh, there's going to be hell to pay in Gilder. Oh yeah, 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 for uh, all the other guards. And then and then when he gets to dead Vizzini, he picks up the vial, which as we know is totally odorless, and says, I okay. I'd stake my life on yes, it. Yes. It's so great. <laughs> I love that. All of that it works. And once again, you have to have the right actor to convey that kind of thing. It doesn't seem stupid. Yeah. It seems totally perfect. Um one thing I missed. So so after after Vizzini dies, uh Buttercup, who's been blindfolded through this whole thing, says, So all the time it was the glass in front of you that was poisoned? And, and Wesley reveals... They were both poisoned. I spent the last few years building up an immunity to Iocane powder. That's How does great. she not know it's him? It's a really good question. Right? If it's true love, you'll know immediately just the sound of his voice. So what we, I'll tell you what William Goldman said okay. was he was following Superman rules. Oh, which is that if yes. Clark Kent can wear glasses and Lois doesn't know it's Superman, then this guy can wear uh, a black mask. By the way, one of my one of the greatest uh, meme jokes I ever saw was Lois Lane putting a picture up on Facebook of her with Superman. In his, <laughs> yes, I saw it. Do you want to tag Clark Kent in this picture? <laughs> and her reaction. To it. If you haven't seen this card, this little panel cartoon, go and find it. It's. I mean, I laughed for ten minutes the first time I saw it because it's so brilliant. Just modern technology yeah. revealing what something that's so <laughs> obvious. obvious. Yeah. But it's not obvious to Buttercup. Right. And he drags her off. They run off together. And two things. One is she's scared of him and angry at him. Right. And two is he is horrible to her. Kind of is. Yeah. And I don't know. Like, Here's a Steve Morris question. Yeah. Is he mad at her? Like legitimately? Because he. I, I was thinking this. I was thinking about this. He raises too. his hand to her, man. That's like here in 2017. That was a little weird to watch. Back it was. in the 80s because it's a fantastical movie. I didn't. It didn't bother me. But like in 2017, you're like, whoa, what is this message sending the kids? You're seeing this guy raise his hand. Well, and he's particularly saying things. There's punishment yeah. when a woman lies what? or like, I know that women are like this. There's yeah. some weird like, you know, and again, it's 2017 right. instead of 1987. Right. Um, so I was thinking about the same thing. I don't think it's consistent because yeah. his manner towards her after the reveal right. is 100% lovey. Yes. And his manner in this moment is like, are you trying to, 
Are you actually pissed or are you trying to test her in some way by pretending to be pissed? I think he's pissed. I think he's angry. I think he's hurt. And so he is, I don't think he would have struck her. But then again, you have to remember, he's been on a pirate ship for five years. Yeah. So that changes a person. That changes a person. But there's no evidence of that anywhere else in the film once, once it gets revealed. Do you know what I mean? He's just sweet no, and no, lovely he's, and he's wonderful. He's noble to everyone he encounters, but he's still a fighter and he wins. And he's Absolutely. relentless. He's aggressively yeah. relentless to get what he wants. And so why is he saving her? How did he know she was being kidnapped? How does he know any of this? That's what's so amazing. True love. Right, which we have, oh, right exactly. True love, But if John. it is true love, why is he angry? Well, that's what... See, I don't right. think it's consistent. That's where I kind of go, like, I don't... It's the one thing where I go, I don't know if Carrie Elwes was pushing it too far. That's oh. what the script was doing or what... Because the, the, if he was... We never... De- we don't go... When I found out you were getting married, I was really hurt and angry. Right, like, we don't right. go there. As soon as... So what's going to happen is, first she says, hey, my my uh, Prince Humperdinck will give you any kind of money. Right. And he mentions, oh, your true love is going to come save you. And she goes, I never said it was my true love. Yeah. And this gets into the... And he keeps kind of pushing and poking yeah, in this well, area. Says, don't mock me. Don't mock me. Like, you mock my pain once, never do it again. And that gets to one of the great lines I say all the time. Life is pain, <laughs> princess. Anyone who tells you any different is selling something. Yes, it's true. That's some heavy... Because even though this is a fairy book story... That's what I'm saying. That's some heavy stuff to say. They're, throughout this whole film, there is a, a, a weight of realism to this fantastical story. Yeah. Always. Um, and then we find out that... He's the Dread Private Roberts, yes. and she realizes you killed my love. Yeah, yeah. And this, by the way, is the scene where he fu- he has just broken his toe that day. And if you watch him walk, he walks in this odd way, and then when he sits down, he does this oh. weird leg extended out in front of yeah. him and kind of lowers himself and then raises himself in this really odd way because he can't walk. Oh, how funny! And you just you know you're an actor. Yeah. Can you imagine being in agony and having to be Wesley and multiple takes? Yeah. And on terrain. Yeah. Not on a, a flat surface. And not terrain. telling your director what the hell's going yes. on. Yeah. And your director enjoying your physical choices, I guess, because he didn't make him do other takes where he was. Well, he said, he, what Rob Reiner says is that he just thought, wow, what an elegant way to sit down. <laughs> How amazing. And then he he found out and he called him over and just was like, why not tell me? Yeah. And Carrie was like, I was, I was so scared. And he was like, no, you're... You're Wesley. Yeah. Like, what a wonderful thing to hear from you. No, you're the guy. Yeah. Your health is most important. And yes, we're going to have to work this out. But you've messed up more by not telling me. And you've hurt hurt me. Yeah. You know? And they send him off in his man in black costume to the hospital. And he's trying to explain to the doctor what happened to his toe. <laughs> um, and then there's this moment where they're right in the middle of an argument. Yeah. And she says, you know, that she wants him to die. And then the horses appear and he turns to the horses and she says, you know, what's, what's her line? You can die too for all I care. You could die too for all I care and pushes him. And what does he say as he goes down the hill? As you wish. <laughs> and one of the weirdest moments in film, she says, oh, my sweet Wesley and throws herself down the hill herself. Great comedy. <laughs> it's Great hilarious. Comedy. Right. Um, and uh, they, the prince uh, uh, goes like, oh, they disappeared. <laughs> yeah, which was great, too. <laughs> and that they're heading towards the fire swamp. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and now the mask has come off, and now they're down being romantic together. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, all this anger and stuff is, is it's gone. gone. It's right. gone. Totally gone. Um, and, of course, what do they do as soon as they see each other again is kiss. Yes. And what do we do as soon as they start kissing? Oh, no. No, please. What is it? What's the matter? They're kissing again. Do we have to hear the kissing part? 
Someday you may not mind so much. <laughs> There's an important thing, by the way, in storytelling where if you have a multiple character story in multiple locations, you have to check in. Yeah. If you left Grandpa and Fred away too long, yeah. we're going to lose track of them. Yeah. And so it's important. And I think this is a check-in. I mean, it's fun, too. Um, and we go into... And I love that Fred says, let's get to that fire swamp part. That sounds cool. <laughs> and we go into the fire swamp. Um, this is all shot, by the way, in Shepparton Studios in England. Um, and and this is the first sequence they shot in the film. Um, and so Bill Goldman is there. William Goldman, the screenwriter, is there. And apparently he's just terrible at being on set. Oh, wow. He gets very stressed out and uncomfortable and difficult because mm. he's somewhat neurotic. Oh, no, you don't say. <laughs> Again, I reference you to go back to the uh, All the Presents Men podcast. <laughs> um, uh, I get, he's got a whooping coming to him if I ever see him. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. A verbal whooping, at least. Um, and uh, uh, there's a moment where there's these popping sounds and there's fire that shoots up and Buttercup's dress gets caught on fire yeah. and Wesley has to put it out. Well, they're shooting that and Goldman's on set and the fire comes up and her dress comes off fire and Goldman yells, oh, Robin, she's on fire. You've oh, got to put her out. God, and ruins God. the take. Oh, my God. Because he got so stressed out. I mean, he wrote the book. He knows <laughs> like what's going to happen, but he was just too stressed. Right. Finally, he had to just turn away and not watch as they were filming because <laughs> he was too nervous. Um, uh, and then we hear the story of how he became the Dread Pirate Roberts. Yeah. Um, which is that he did get captured. He was about to be killed. And then he said this, please, and talked about his true love. And the pirate said, well, I've never had a valet. And so, you know, do some work. I'll most likely kill you in the morning. Right. And I'll most likely kill you in the morning is a thing I say to people all the time. <laughs> oh, great. Good to know. All the time. Well, people who know the movie. Right, right, right. <laughs> nice work. Get some rest. I'll most likely kill you in the morning. <laughs> and he does that for a long time, at which point he finds out that this is not the Dread Pirate Roberts and that it's a title that's been passed down and he's going to be the next Dread Pirate Great reveal. Great reveal. It's really great. And we're kind of glossing over the fact that they do kill people. They, 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 they don't take prisoners, which means yeah. that the guy that was Wesley's buddy and presumably Wesley as well yeah. has been not taking prisoners and killing people for a long time. Right. For, and so has Wesley. And so has Wesley, and yeah. we're to believe the Dread Pirates are the Dread Pirate Roberts. But like in all good fairy tales... <laughs> We're not going to worry about this. Right, right, right. And we can't worry about this anyway, because as we're finishing the story, Buttercup falls through the lightning sand and disappears. But before she does that, he says, now that we're together, oh, I'm gonna I retire. will retire as Dread Pirate Rides and find somebody else. So he's done with that life immediately because he got her, he's back together with her. Yeah. So right. she jumps, drops down the lightning sand. He dives in after her. And as they're down there, we get the first shot of our third danger of the fire swamp, the R-O-U-S's. Right. And this was interesting watching the movie today because I guess maybe in my head I'd forgotten the sequence of things because he climbs out of the thing with Robin Wright and sees the rodents. I've always found it weird. And then says when she asks him about like, is he saying that to make her feel better? And then the rodent jumps on her when he says like, you know, I don't rodents of unusual size. I don't think they exist. And then boom, they jump like he saw them. I think it's really weird. I don't think it works. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree. It's always seemed weird to me because it's not... I understand his beat work of, I don't want to scare you. Right. But I don't understand him not getting his sword out and getting in a defensive position. Right, just in case. He kind of just ignores them. Right. Um, and these are big rat kind of things that are... Some of them are just stuffed animals. And two of them are ones that little people run around in. Yeah, you can tell. 
Apparently, there were two different guys. One guy who was good at sort of the intricate work, yeah. and, but couldn't move very fast, and one guy who moved really fast. And they needed the guy who moved really fast to start the fight scene, uh, but he was arrested for drunk driving the night before because <laughs> <laughs> he was out on a bit of a bender. And he's trying to explain to the police, no, no, you have to let me go. I'm in this movie. Yeah. I have to get to set in two hours. <laughs> oh, you're in a movie. Sure. What are you doing? He's like, well, I play a, a big rat. <laughs> And so they had to stop set and 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 Rob and uh, his producer had to go bail him out to get him on set to do this fight scene while extremely hungover. This is why <laughs> this is why people talk about movie making as an insane experience, because you never know what's going to happen. Yep. And when you let people when people leave your set, you don't know what they're going to do and if they're going to actually show up the next day. You just never know. Yeah. But we have a big fight with the ROUS. Yeah. And this is one, too, where I go, oh, I wish they'd made uh, Robin Wright fight more. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. she's very princess Very passive. damsel in distress. Yeah, very much so. And again, it's 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. But now, like, she picks but up a log. it's that time of the stories, yeah. too. The stories, women were always yeah. damsels in distress in the yeah. stories. Yeah. Uh, and there's, we hear the popping sound. He rolls over to the flames, and we get the ROUS killed. And we come out of the fire swamp and are immediately trapped. Yep. Surrender. You mean wish to surrender to me? Pretty well, I accept. And as Wesley is talking to Prince Humperdinck. Defiantly. Defiantly. Yeah, yeah. Like, death first. We'll go live in the fire swamp. Buttercup starts noticing four guys with crossbows that are surrounding them. And, and he, when he says death first, she says, Will you promise not to hurt him? Which stops the whole confrontation. Stops the whole thing. And I love that, uh, that Humperdinck goes, what was that? And Wesley goes, what was that? Yeah. It's a great little comic beat. But she's the smart one in the situation. Because his uh, male vanity wants him to fight all these guys. And he could lose and get Buttercup killed on Crossfire or whatever. Yep. And she says she does the smart thing. Which is sometimes it's not always the smart thing to fight. Well, she's smart and naive. Yeah. She's both. Well, naive eventually, but... Because she doesn't understand that this is the bad guy. Right. Fair. Fair, 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 fair. Um, But yes, she and she's doing the sacrifice. She's saying... I don't. I cannot live with you dying again. Yes, I would rather awesome. marry you, marry this guy who I don't love, than see you die again. Which is great. Um, so they go off, and now we get to talk about another actor who we have not talked about. Yeah, because the, we've seen him. This is the count that has been with the prince on this hunt, but he hasn't really said a whole bunch. Yeah. And now, after Humperdinck and Buttercup go away. Wesley is left alone with Count Rugen. Yeah, because he had said he would put him, uh, uh, Prince Humperdinck says uh, he will put uh, the man in black, Wesley, on his ship right. and send him out. And the last things he said to, hum- to Buttercup is, I swear it will be done. Yeah. And then as he, the prince is about to go away and Buttercup is off, he turns to Rugen and says, Once we're out of sight, take him back to Florin and throw him in the pit of despair. I swear it will be done. Count, only only count, one of them's telling the truth. <laughs> yeah. Count Rugen. Yeah. This is, again, inspired casting. I mean, Christopher Guest. I mean, and again, that's what I mean. Is like, for Andre the Giant, Carrie Elwes, and Robin Wright, it's like, these are the only people on the planet who can play these parts. Right. For Wallace Shawn and Mandy Patinkin and Christopher Guest, it's like, how the hell did you come up with these people to play these parts? <laughs> yeah. Um, and Christopher Guest is amazing. He really is. He is funny and scary. And I honestly, because in 1987, when I saw in the theater, I wasn't the big, like, I didn't know names of people. Oh, okay. I had no idea who this was. 
I didn't know this was the same guy from Spinal Tap. Uh huh. I didn't know. I didn't know who it was. It was just that was Count Rugen. I didn't recognize him from SNL. I had not seen Spinal Tap by this time, mm. and I had seen his year in SNL with Crystal, right, and Martin Short, so, right. Uh, but I could didn't recognize him at all. No, at all. No. Uh, and Wesley looks and says, you know, we're both men of actions. Lies do not become us. Yeah. And Count Rugen's well said. Yeah. And then he notices you have six fingers on your on your right hand. Someone's been looking for you. Boom. And Rugen hits him in the head. Interesting thing about that. So when they went to shoot it, Christopher Guest is not the most physical of guys. No. And he did it a couple of times and it just didn't look good. And Carrie said, no, no, just tap me on the head with the thing. You can make a little contact. It's fine. Knocked him out. <laughs> For real knocked him out. In that shot. The Holy shot shit. that is in the movie is Carrie always being knocked unconscious. <laughs> Wakes up in the hospital with the same doctor who worked on him with the toe. And he still dresses the man in black. <laughs> what kind of movie are you making, man? I know. And yet everyone loves each other on yeah, this movie. Yeah. Everyone talks about this as one of the great movie making. Just mm-hmm. a family that just... Had so much fun at every moment, except Carrie always apparently getting the shit kicked out of him. <laughs> right. So you know where we end up now? In the pit of despair. Don't even think about. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted is, him to be in the film longer. Me too. This right? is Mel Smith, who's Mel, a British comic, very yeah. funny, and that was it. That was his idea too. The little coughing thing. Oh, that's, really? that's his oh, idea. Brilliant. Of course. Yeah. And and by the way, if you read the book, the, the books, there's the zoo of death, not the pit of despair. Oh, okay. And it's five levels of deadly animals, which when, <laughs> really? uh, yes, it's very complicated. Wow. And when Inigo and Fezzik have to go, they have to fight their way through the five levels. And it's all cool. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But this is what you do in movies is we got to, and I like this, the sound of the pit of despair yeah. more than the zoo of death. Yeah. And there's this moment of where he's going like, okay, it's going to be torture. I can, I can deal with torture. Yeah. And I love Mel Smith's like shaking his head. Yeah. You, you know, you have no idea what no. you're talking about. No. Uh, and then that night the King died. And so they had to rush the wedding and they got married and she became the queen and Prince Humperdinck is presenting her as the queen and Fred goes wait 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 <laughs> that can't happen and i love that she can't marry him because that wouldn't be right All right she can't marry Humperdinck she has to marry Wesley it's a child's understanding of things right yeah fair justice fair yeah. you know fair is a big one in my house right now we have a lot of conversations about fair i'm sure and my son does not understand what fair means <laughs> like we're trying to get it fair, fair for him at this mo- mostly means i didn't get what i want yeah you know and we're trying to teach him like no fair and then if we can get into his head what fair really means, we're also going to have to teach him this lesson, which is what Grandpa said, which is, well, who said life was fair? Right. Where was that written? Life isn't always fair. Right. This is important. And, but but Fred, Fred Savage is like, no, I'm telling you, you're messing up the story. That's great. Yeah. We get back in. We get presented with Queen Buttercup. And as she walks into her people, what do we hear? Boo! Boo! Bow down to the Queen of Refuge. This the is so Mighty Python. You Trescents. Yes, it's very Mighty Python. Very. I don't know who the woman is. I should. I meant. To oh yeah. Her. I don't know either. But it's very Mighty Python. This is very Pythonish. And then she wakes up because it yes. was a dream. Um, and I love the little Fred voice going. I see. I told you. Yes, you're very shy. Now shut up. Yes. Um, that's great. Um, and she goes to tell Prince Humperdinck, I love Wesley, and if you let me get, don't let me get married, I'm going to kill myself. I mean, yeah. try to make me get married, I'm going to kill myself. And he, again, Chris Sarandon does a great job with the, oh, I don't want to have that happen. We'll send my four fastest ships to go find the pirate ship Revenge. Yeah. 
And, I, and if you don't get anything back, then I hope you consider me as a, a, a fair alternative right. to suicide. Right. That's great. So we have the Count and the Prince talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and now is when we really find out that the Prince was behind the kidnapping. Yeah. He plans on, and since she didn't get killed and he wants to frame uh, Gilder, he's going to kill her on strangling her on the night of their wedding night, which will be much more satisfying. My God, he's a, yeah. So he's a sociopath. Yeah, basically. And then we get dialogue, which I think so separates this movie from anything else in history. Yeah. For me, I remember being in the theater when I heard... Tyrone, you know how much I love watching you work, but I've got my country's 500th anniversary to plan, my wedding to arrange, my wife to murder, and Gilda to frame for it. I'm swamped. Get some rest. If you haven't got your health, you haven't got anything. Now, those lines yeah. are totally modern. They're in a completely different time zone from everything else. And once again, though, you can appreciate their exchange, right? It makes them interesting characters. But juxtapose that with Fezzik and Inigo and Vecini, their interest is not endearing. No. That's oh, no. the thing. And that's it's funny. They, it's funny, but it's also evil. Well, they're evil. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. And so, like, you really get the difference. And that's why you cast the way you do. Well, and there's something very funny about this these two purely evil people yeah. who actually do care about each other. Yeah, it's a weird kind of relationship. <laughs> it's a totally bizarre moment. Yeah. And then Count Rugen goes down into the pit of despair, introduces Wesley to the machine, and his whole manner. This is where Christopher Guest is just amazing. Yeah. Um, That's why you cast him. Yeah. Um, Amazing. But to see that in Christopher Guest after Spinal Tap, after Silent Live and go, no, no, he can do this thing. Yeah. 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 Crazy. Um, And he does this thing with the machine, which is based on a water wheel, and he sucks one year of life out of Wesley. What a great scene. It is. Powerful. Once again, there is a darkness to this movie underneath all the fantastical elements. And this is like his crying at the end when he asks for... How do you feel? Yeah, his honest response to what he's just experienced, yeah. and he just starts crying, which is amazing. And Rugen's response is interesting. Yes. Um, here's an undersung, I don't remember the guy's name, but an undersung guy is Yellen, is the the palace guard. Oh, yeah. In this oh, film. My God. He is so funny in every little moment, and he, he really makes is. all these little beats. He runs and he kneels down, he puts his arm on Prince Humperdinck's chair, <laughs> and then takes it off, and there's a look. Like all, his, all those little looks are really, really funny. He reminds me of the guy from. Uh, young Frankenstein who plays the the chief yes. with the arm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just, he's perfect for those moments that he's in and he has these little in exchanges with the main characters yeah, that are beats. so funny. They're really funny. And, and we're going to double the palace guard. Yeah. We're going to send out a brute squad to clear the thieves' quarter. Um, and there's a great moment moment where he you know he says oh this is going to be hard and, and i love prince humperdinck's try ruling the world sometime <laughs> he just um, stares at him. uh the brute squad heads out into the thieves quarter and kind of is rounding people up but there's one guy giving them trouble there's this drunk spaniard which is of course in the yeah who has gone back to the beginning because that's what vicini said to do if anything went wrong go back to the beginning he is drunk yeah. and there's a guy threatening him and he calls a brute over and who is the brute well, we find out because he puts his hand in the frame. <laughs> Hello. It's you. Ah! I love it. Yeah, Christopher Guest said that he made sure to shake uh, Andre the Giant's hand every time he saw him because there was something so 
powerful about feeling your hand wrapped in this thing that was three times your size. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that shot is, it's a big hand. It is. And, and I love that Patinkin kind of plays that because he compares his hand to yeah. the size of physics. Hand. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we, we, we sober up. We tell him that, that Count Rugen is a six-figure man. Yeah. We start sobering him up. And now we see what you were talking about before, that energy that, yes. like, I'm going to go. Mm-hmm. It's time. Once we have purpose, yeah. we go get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but how are we going to get him? Because we can't get past the third. I love the moment where there's, like, there's 30 people men guarding the palace. Yeah. How many can you handle? 10. And he goes, and there's the finger counting for a while. That leaves 20 for me. At my best, I could never handle that many. Yeah. You know, I, lo- I, I love that. And then the realization, we don't need Vizzini. We need the man in black. Once again, very smart of him to think this. Very smart. Yeah. Absolutely. And then, and then when we find, he goes, well, how are you going to find him? He's like, don't bother me with trifles. After 20 years, at last, my father's soul will be at peace. There will be blood tonight. I love there will be blood tonight. Yes, I Yours love was that. better. But I, just love, I love the joy he has in the, oh. in the, in the, the excitement. Yeah. So, so anyone who's watched Mandy Patinkin over, uh, over the years knows this guy's got some intensity. He's never done anything like this ever again. Yeah. There are moments in Homeland, but as an actor, I've never seen him in any film do yeah. anything like this, quite like this. Have you listened to Sunday in the Park with George? Yeah. <sighs> Man, I, have it. I have that as one of the downloaded soundtracks on my yeah. iPod. The, yep. the passion and the power of oh, what yeah. he is doing in that is like, and the range of his voice is mm-hmm. just ridiculous. He is the highest tenor I've ever heard. Um, oh my God, yeah. And when the woman that you want it goes, you can see me yourself. Well, I give what I give. But the woman who won't wait for you knows that however you live, there's a part of you always standing by, mapping out the stars. So Yellen's back in reporting to the prince and Buttercup comes in and he starts talking about my whole fleet is going to be there after our wedding. Every ship but you'll fall fastest, you mean? And that's when she realizes he's lying. Yep. Yeah. And, and she calls him a coward and he says, I would not say such things if I were you. And then she says, Why not? You can't hurt me. Wesley and I are joined by the bonds of love. And you cannot track that, not with a thousand bloodhounds. And you cannot break it, not with a thousand swords. And when I say you are a coward, that is only because you are the slimiest weakling ever to crawl the earth. And he drags her away. I would not say such things as I were you. And what's really great is that anger and energy carries you right down into the pit of despair. Yes. Where he goes, you had true love. And you, not one couple in a century has that chance. And so not one couple in a century will suffer as much. No, he says not one man. Well, not one man. Will suffer yeah. as much as you will. And then jacks the fucking machine up to 50. Not to 50. 50 and this years. is scary. Like the way the sh- top-down shot with the thing spinning around and yeah. Wesley screaming, the, the, the sound of ultimate suffering. And the sound goes out across oh. the land and all the people hear it. And the prince hears it and Buttercup hears it and Indigo hears it. Yeah. And he knows because that is the sound of true suffering. Yeah. Because that is the sound he made when his father was killed. Yeah, exactly. It's so brilliant. And then I love him trying to get through the crowd. Excuse me, pardon. Excuse me, it's important. Fezzik, please. Everybody move. Uh, um, I, my, I, I worked when I worked at Universal Studios with my friend Kyle Anderson. He is seven foot nine. Seven foot nine? Is that right? No. Six nine. <sighs> seven foot nine is 
Six nine. Yeah. Andre the Giant's like seven four. Okay, so he was five. six nine. Yeah. He was massive. Yeah. Tall guy, big guy. Ate like a ate like a garbage disposal. Ate everything. Right. One time we were stuck at uh in the land where we were being regular citizens doing the land doing the rides. Right. And <laughs> I told him, I was like, I started doing the Princess Bride moment. Right. I started being an ego, and I was like, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And I said, and I said to him, Fezzik, please. And he goes, everybody move really loud. And it fucking happened. It really happened. Like, all these people, like, moved out of the way. We just walked through. We were laughing our asses. That is hilarious. <laughs> A giant comes in handy. Yeah, totally. Uh, anyway, yeah. We find the tree. Yes. And we do first we find the albino. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Fezzik, joggest memory. Jogs him a little too hard. <laughs> oh, so great. And then Indigo prays. Yeah, man. It's a lovely low angle shot with God, you know, lines yeah. streaming down from the heavens. And <laughs> he turns and his sword is guided to the tree. Yep. And it's even a great moment where his sword hits the tree and he has this moment of, oh, it didn't work and leans against the tree in frustration and hits the thing that opens the tree. Yeah, it's the knot. It's nice. Yeah. But what we discover is when we go down into the pit, this Wesley is dead. He is dead. No, you, you read that wrong, Grandpa. You can't. <laughs> what do you mean he's dead? Yep. And, and I love, too, that Fred, because we're back with Fred, and he goes, Wesley's only faking, right? You want me to read this or not? Who gets Humperdinck? I don't understand. Who kills Prince Humperdinck? At the end, somebody's got to do it. Is it Inigo who? Nobody. Nobody kills him. He lives. You mean he wins? Jesus, Grandpa, what did you read me this thing for? It's such a brilliant yeah. thing to do this in the near the end of the movie, right? He tells you the bad guy doesn't die. Yeah. Interesting. Like it's yeah. a ballsy decision in this like cute little film to have this ballsy decision of betraying your ending. Yeah. And because it sets you up that when you see what happens to him, you understand. Well, and, and the emotion of Fred in that moment is like, you mean he, he wins? Yeah. Jesus, why did you tell this me story? Why have you why have you done this to me? Yeah. And this is the thing I was thinking about too, is that when when, you know, in the first stories that I've read to my son at the very beginning, they're literally just, you know, words and they yeah. rhyme and they're cute pictures and stuff. And there's this certain moment where we become emotionally involved. Mm -hmm. And this is that moment is happening with Fred Savage's character right now. Is like Oh no, I'm feeling real things. Yeah. I'm not just this is not just a story. It's not just fun, but like and 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 the thing is we have to go through the pit of despair and oh, sure. good stories mm -hmm. to get to our endings. Yeah. If we don't have the pit of despair, there's no good story. The great obstacles are what make stories amazing. And defeats. Obstacles and challenges. And defeats. Yes. Yeah. Like life. Loss. Yeah. Like life, damn it. Yeah, we have to overcome stuff. Yep. Um so we're back to the pit. Um and 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 Inigo is not giving up. Yeah. Yeah, this Spaniard is, you know, oh. been in the revenge business a long time. He says, he, but he also says the word. He said, it's not fair. He says, yeah. it's not fair. And he goes, bring his body up. And he says, what is, bring his body up. We're going we're gonna to get him a miracle. We're going to figure this out. How much money yeah. do you have? So again, a smart decision. He knows what to do. Yeah. He doesn't know he's smart, but he's right. smart. Yeah. No, he saves the day. Yep. I mean, absolutely. Multiple times. Multiple times. Yep. And we, <laughs> we've arrived at Miracle Max. Yes. What? Are you the Miracle Max who worked for the king all those years? The king's thinking son fired me. And thank you so much for bringing up such a painful subject. While you're at it, why don't you give me a nice paper cut and pour lemon juice on it? We're closed. I think this sequence is so close to too far that it is perfect and amazing. What? 
No, I'm saying it is amazing. Okay. I'm saying if you went one inch further, it would be too far. It All is, right. That just because Billy Crystal is at a whole other place. <laughs> the whole film is fantastically ridiculous. Why wouldn't you have Miracle Max in this film? How does he not fit in this no, film? You're, you're acting like I'm criticizing this moment. Well, I'm I feel saying, like you're saying, because to me, I want more. I would love to have gone a whole foot, not one <laughs> inch, a whole fucking foot. I'd love to, a whole foot more it's of It's amazing. And this they is have great th- chemistry, too. Incredible. And this is Billy Crystal at the top of his powers. Yes. And, and it's funny. So when um, Goldman wrote it, what he's picturing is... Mel Brooks's 2,000-year-old man. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And so, and when Billy Crystal, when Rob, and they're like best buddies, yeah. as we talked about when we talked about When Harry Met Sally, when Rob Reiner um, gets asked Billy Crystal to do it, he's like, why don't you just get Mel? Yeah. This is literally, Mel, Mel is literally his father's best friend. Right. He grew up with Mel Brooks. Right. And, and Rob Reiner's answer, which I love, is like, if I got Mel Brooks, it would be Mel Brooks. Yeah. It would be Mel, and I don't want that. I want this to be Miracle Max. Right. And the performance that Billy Crystal did is hilarious. Yeah. It's obviously tons of improv. And I would argue that it's it's Billy Crystal. It is, yeah. Like you would like he was saying, well, it will be Mel Brooks. This is Billy Crystal. Right. This it, is I, stuff I agree. You, if you if you see his stand up, this is stuff you've seen in his act. Yeah. Him do those kinds of things. Well, the even, mutton lay, mutton lays and lay, that's all in his well, act. Well, even the like the lemon the lemon juice in the paper cut, <laughs> that was the bit he did with Christopher Guest yeah, on Saturday Night Live right, right then. That's right. There was tons of improv in this, and one of the big problems in shooting it was everyone, particularly Rob Reiner, keeps cracking up. Of course. Rob Reiner had to leave the room. It's he would say genius. action and he would leave. It's genius. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the only major injury Mandy Patinkin sh- f- suffered in the whole project was bruising a rib from holding in laughter in this scene. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. It wow. is a really funny scene. And we have to mention, too, Carol Kane comes in and totally oh, holds her own. Fantastic. She's so great. In She's one of the most underappreciated comedians. I agree. No one talks about her in the same breath they talk about Carol Burnett or Lily Tomlin or these other... Yeah, you know, fantastic comedians, and Carol Kane has never. Not, in fact, up to now, and she's un, in Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. She is mm. hilarious. Every I love her in Scrooge. That angel part yeah. she plays in Scrooge is brilliant. She's hilarious. Loved her in Taxi as yeah. uh, Lakas. Yeah. yeah, why all that? It, Simka. Simka. Was Simka. Yeah. How do I remember that? Jesus. But yeah, she's so great every time she shows up. And uh, what we discover is that he's only mostly dead <laughs> and that they're trying to figure out, the, is there a noble cause? And I love Indigo's lies. This is noble, sir. His wife is crippled. His children are on the brink of starvation. Are you a rotten liar? I need him to help avenge my father. Murdered these 20 years. Your first story was better. It's really funny. And then uh, and it ends up that we, we he says true love oh, after we do this gag with the bellows. And we end. And he doesn't want to believe that it's yeah. true love because he's scared. Yeah, Sonny, true love is the greatest thing in the world. Except for a nice MLT. Mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich when the mutton is nice and lean. And the tomatoes are ripe. They're so perky. I love that. But that's not what he said. He distinctly said to blave. And as we all know, to blave means to bluff. Huh? So you're probably playing cards and he cheated. Liar! 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 Get back, witch! I'm not a witch, I'm your wife! But after what you just said, I'm not even sure I want to be dead anymore. You never had it so good. To love. He said to love, Max. Don't say another word, Valerie. He's afraid. Ever since Prince Humperdinck fired him, his confidence is shattered. Why'd you say that name? You promised me that you would never say that name. What? Humperdinck? Ah! Humperdinck! Ah! 
And again, you're right. You know what? I'm going totally on Team Smart Inigo now yeah. because it's Indigo who comes up with. This is Buttercup's true love. If you heal him, he will stop Humperdinck's wedding. Shut up. Wait, wait. I make him better. Humperdinck suffers. Humiliations galore. <laughs> I did a lick, That is a noble cause. Give me the 65. I'm on the job. And that is the key that gets Miracle Max on board. This whole movie does not happen without an ego. Well, it doesn't happen without any of them, but yes. Well, nobody gets saved. Right. True love never happens. Inigo is the linchpin to this entire movie. I agree. Movie. I agree. Uh, again, I'm never. <laughs> he's my favorite character too. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm not. People don't him down. talk about the movie enough and focus how much yeah. Inigo saves the day so many times. Yeah. So we would create our chocolate-covered uh, miracle pill. Yeah. We send our kids off, have fun storming the castle. It's a great line. By the way, this whole scene is one of the most quotable scenes for me. I can quote that whole thing from beginning to yeah, end. It's and fantastic. Of all the other scenes in the film, this is the one that I quote from beginning to end. Well, and this we should say. You know, as we talked about with some other films, this is a quotable movie. Yeah. This is a movie that I, there's 20, 30 things I say that come out of this film. I want to say this correctly. I hope I walked the line. You're Jewish. I want to walk the line correctly. You don't like Jews. No. When I see certain films and how funny Jewish people really are, I wish sometimes that I was Jewish or I feel like there's a part of me that's Jewish because I've always enjoyed Jewish humor, even as a child all the way through. These Jewish comedians have always gravitated to them. And black comedians. I've always gravitated to Jewish and black comedians. There's just something about them that I understand the jokes and appreciate the craftsmanship of the jokes and what they're doing. And there are moments and films that I see where I go, fuck, I wish I was Jewish. Like, I just well, wish I was grown up in that culture because there's just such a joy. There's such humor to so much pain. They have to create so much incredible humor to deal with a history of pain that has been Jewish through centuries in this world. So. Well, I will say on behalf of all the Jewish people, yes, I thank you. <laughs> You're most welcome. I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, there's a tradition of Jewish humor that goes way back. Absolutely. And if you look at American comedy, there's a big hunk of it that comes from Jewish humor. Of course. You know, without any question. Yeah. And obviously, Rob Reiner, Billy Crystal. Right. You know, like the... The, 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 the litany of... Yeah, yeah. It, and, and what happens in that Miracle Max scene is like... That's all some Jewish humor. That's classic vaudeville yeah. shit. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's classic, classic shtick. So, so we head out onto the ramparts, and uh, we've got... I love just the visual of it's sort of uh, Fezzik carrying Wesley, followed by Indigo, yeah. crawling along, and they decide, is it time to wake up Wesley? And they decide, hey, we got to do it. And they put that pill in there. How long is it going to take? He's awake. Yeah. And immediately, he's ready to fight them both. Yeah. I'll beat you apart. I'll take you both together. Why don't my arms move? This scene is so funny. It is. And it's believable, too, because he wakes up and he doesn't know who he's with. No. Why, and why would he? He's just waking up from being yeah. dead. You know? and, and, and they tell him, you know, your yeah. brains, your steel, your strength to take on 60 men. Yeah. And I love, again, this is why you cast Carrie Elwes and it was so mm-hmm. brilliant because he handles this whole scene. He's indignant and he's funny. And he also, all the stuff with having uh, Fezzik move his head around and not be, that's Carrie Elwes's idea. Oh, of course. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's uh, really funny. Well, the person who does physical action controls the situation. It makes sense that he would come up with it. Right. Um, I also love this almost like Lucy moment, Lucy Ricky Ricardo moment where he says, let me explain. No, it's too much. Let me sum up. I wonder if that was an homage because Lucy does, or Ricky says right. it in, in the show all the time. Let this, me sum up. It's too much to explain. 
Let me sum up. Yeah. Oh, did he? Does Ricky say that? In the yeah, show? Ricky I has said that. it numerous times in the in the. Because that's Lucy another show. one I quote all the time. Yeah, it's. Great. Let me explain. No, it's too much. Let me sum up. Let me sum up. <laughs> it is so hilarious, um, and all of the you know you just shake your head. Shouldn't that make you happy? Yeah. You know, you think a little head shake will make me happy? Hmm. <laughs> it's really funny. Yes. And, and then they head off. They find. They find. Well, if we had. If only we had a wheelbarrow. <laughs> oh, we have that wheelbarrow. If only we had a Holocaust cloak. Well, why didn't you list these among our assets? And the thing is this. That seems so convenient, yet the film earns that moment. That's oh, yeah. the, the film is so fantastic and good that you don't care that he's some cloak that somehow he got, which you never saw the scene for. Whatever, yeah, and whatever the hell a Holocaust cloak yeah, is. Right, I don't right, even, yeah, right. Apparently, you can light, just light them on fire and yeah. just stand in them. <laughs> um, um, and even then, going off like, don't pester him. He's had a hard day. Right, right. And, and then the hand comes down and nods. Yes, so great. It's great. And, and there's even this moment where they do the all for one, one for all hand. And yeah. I love Carrie Elwes' physicality of throwing his hand over. Yeah. Uh, and just as they're about to mount their attack, it's time to start the wedding. Yeah. And there is a big rise of the orchestra as we push in on a beautiful, you know, medievalish wedding ceremony and push in on this clergyman dressed in fine garb. And the music stops and there's a long pause dramatically before we hear the first words of <laughs> knowledge that's uh, what a great surprising laugh yeah and peter cook just yeah. so great once again that's why i said to you i don't understand why you think miracle max is out of there's so many fantastical characters in the whole film i you're i think you're right yeah Look, I, I again i'm not criticizing that scene but i'm not and, and i'm not pushing back at you going you're wrong i'm saying i don't understand in a way that's like that's my point opinion just as your opinion and yours is completely valid yeah. to feel that it is and you're right because marriage and mel smith and all yeah. of this stuff is ridiculous it's all ridiculous yeah um, it's also endearing at the same time yeah and peter cook another great british comedian yeah. and partners with uh dudley moore dudley and moore, yeah right. Um, and he is is this really crazy performance as this guy, um, uh, the impressive clergyman. I think is how yeah, they the list him in the clergyman. Yeah. <laughs> and and now we're going to intercut between this marriage ceremony that's going on inside the castle yeah. and the attack on the outside, and we're pushing uh, Andre the Giant in the Holocaust cloak in the wheelbarrow forward. He's about seventeen feet tall somehow. Yeah. And we push him forward. We light him on fire while he's calling out, "I'm the twenty-five twelvers." There will be no survivor. And then they light him on fire, and he says, "Red Pyre Roberts is here for you." Soul. So I love that. that's a classic, classic. Um, and uh, and while this is happening, we're back inside. They're hearing the sounds. He sends Count Rugen and some men off to yeah. deal with that. Then we're back outside. The guys, are the the guards are all scattering. Yellen's going to be all alone. Now we start rushing the impressive clergyman. Come on, we move it along, move it along, and uh, we're back inside or we're back outside. And now we're alone with Yellen. Oh Give us the key. Uh, what gate key? I have no key. <laughs> Fezzik, tear his arms off. Oh, this key. <laughs> brilliant. Really good. Just brilliant. Yeah. And all this whole time, we're just dragging Wesley around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then he's pu- he finally pushes the, the, uh, the impressive clergyman forward and say, say man and wife. Man and wife. <laughs> and the wedding is apparently over. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> and she thinks she's been married to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're inside the castle. I love the physicality of how Wesley is leaning on Fezzik. Yeah. It is hilarious. Mm-hmm. And Count Rugen is charging with guards, and Indigo 
turns around a corner and there is Count Rugen in front of him. He sends four guards at him. And this is a really fast and yes. really good little sword fight. Mm-hmm. And, and, in tight goal. quarters. Yeah, tight quarters. And he wipes him out. Yep. <laughs> And then what does he say to Count Rugen? <laughs> Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Finally, he gets to say it. He says it. And, what was, and what's so brilliant about the film, once again, and the great films do this, they give you an expectation and they go completely the yep. other way with it and they do it in a way that's believable, it works. And it was when he turns and runs, you're like, what the... Oh, and there's a moment. I think what sells it too is he says the line. Yeah, Count Rugen takes it in, he drops down into a stance. He rotates yeah. his hand, and you go like, "Oh my God, this is going to be the most amazing sword fight!" And then he just turns tail. <laughs> and even Patinkin is shocked, or the character of an ego is shocked. Like, oh shit! And what he happened? starts taking off after him. Yeah. Takes off after him. I remember that in the theater, and yeah, I remember just being in hysterics yeah. when he turn, when he takes off. You just don't expect it. Yep. Inigo takes after after him. Yeah. Gets to this closed door. Cannot get through the door. Starts calling out, Fezzik! Oh. Fezzik, he's getting away! Yeah. So Fezzik leaves Wesley on a suit of armor, just kind of hanging on. There's a great little moment where he just knocks the... I, and by the way, I don't know what that door was built out of, and I don't know if uh, Mandy Patinkin was patted up on his shoulder, but he's yeah. throwing himself at that door. He really is. Really hard. Well, and I like that he... Yeah, and, and uh, like the desperation in his voice. Yeah. Fezzik! He's gonna, you can feel the pain coming back that he's not going oh, yeah. to get not gonna get again. Yes. It's so and, good. Uh, and Fezzik just knocks down that door, gives a little bow, and off he goes through. Yeah. Um, while Buttercup is kind of walking off with the king, gives her a little kiss, says, you've always been nice to me, and I'm going to go kill myself. Yeah. And the king goes, she kissed me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, Fezzik comes back to where he left Wesley. Wesley's gone. Yeah. Uh, Indigo is chasing, chasing, chasing. And by the way, most of this is shot. Shot in combo of Shepard and Studios and at a real castle, like a yeah. 1066, you know, William the Conqueror castle. Um, and you can kind of tell when they're yeah. in which and when the other. He comes around the corner. Uh, Count Rugen has drawn a dagger from his boot, throws it <laughs> right in the belly of yeah. Indigo. And it's there's this moment of, oh shit. Yeah. This is, this is not going to work out. Because mm-hmm. he goes against the wall and he says sorry father and I love Count Rugen have you been chasing me your whole life only to fail now that's the worst thing I've ever heard mm-hmm. how marvelous <laughs> he takes it's, pain is his delicacy <laughs> exactly now we're at this is the low point yeah you know Wesley's disappeared Fezzik is lost Indigo is stabbed yeah. Buttercup is back in her chamber she opens up a box she pulls out a dagger very beautiful dagger yes she aims it at her heart and we hear the there's a shortage of perfect breasts in this world it would be a pity to damage yours <laughs> and there's Wesley on the bed yeah then she jumps on top of him starts kissing him yeah gently gently yeah. thunk that was great did yeah. he, he didn't knock himself out on that did he no I don't think so <laughs> And then Indigo takes the dagger out. Oh, love it. Um, and, and Count Rugen's reaction is, you're still trying to, trying to win. Or are you still trying to win? Yeah. You have an overdeveloped sense of vengeance. It's going to get you into trouble one day. Yeah. <laughs> um, so oh. apparently Mandy was pretty pumped shooting this scene. I'm sure he was. He's an intense actor. He's very intense. To the point where when they were practicing right before they shot it, he actually did stab Chris uh, Chris Guest in the thigh. Holy crap! Yeah, now, I don't think it was too deep or anything, but he 
you know, broke skin. Holy shit. On his leg. And Christopher Guest went to Bob Anderson and said, um, I think he's going to really try to kill me. <laughs> so I'm going to, if I need, I'm just going to throw the choreography out and defend myself. That's how he described the situation. And the build of, of him repeating the same line yeah. over and over again with barely enough breath to get it out at first and then grow, you know, first he just yeah. has enough strength to deflect the killing shot to his left shoulder yep. and then a little bit more strength to deflect the next shot to his right bicep. Right. And you could see Count Rugen going, oh, this is going to be a little trouble. And now he fully deflects it yeah. and he says it again. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And now he starts to, re you could see the strength coming into him and his realization that he's going to be able to take this guy. Yeah. You know, until it gets to... Montoya, you killed my father. Prepare to die. Stop saying that. Let me tell you something, man. You know, we want to win. Uh, anyway, yeah. So there you go. And he gets him. And I love that last. I love that whole thing, dude, because it is a perfect end to his story in a way where he says to him, "Offer me money. Yes. Power to promise me that. All that I have and more. Please, offer me everything I ask for." Anything you want. I want my father back, you son of a bitch. I want my father back, you son of a bitch. I get emotional every single fucking time I see it. Every single time. Because his delivery and his acting is just perfect. Well, and now, unfortunately, I'm going to tell you something that will make you even more emotional. I'm leaving the this. podcast right now. There's no, don't you ruin this goddamn, oh, you're going to make me more emotional. Oh, yeah. Oh, shit. All right. So part of the reason that he took this job, uh, Bandy, was that he had lost his father in 1972. And he felt that playing Inigo Montoya was a way to fight for his father again. Wow. And this is what he said. And I want to say it exactly how he said it. He said... And in my mind, when I killed that six-finger man, I killed the cancer that killed my father. Uh, and for a moment, he was alive. Damn, dude. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck, man. That's okay. All right. So now Because my dad died of cancer, and that's... I know. All right. All right. Thanks. Yeah. I'm not... Uh, all right. Anyway, we're moving on. Next... Okay. What's, what's the next scene? So, uh... You manipulative son of a bitch. What's the next scene? Um... Sorry, I gotta find my spot. Yeah. So we're back to Buttercup and Wesley. Yeah. And but I but I would have to say is that I want my father back, you son of a bitch. It makes me cry every single time. Damn right. And now that you know my father's passed away, too, every single time. Yeah. And the thing is, this is the emotional climax of the film. Uh huh. Without any question. And this is where I. This is what. This is why Inigo's my favorite character too. Yeah. Because he's the heart. Yep. And and it's like and and maybe part of it is that I don't believe in true love. Ooh. You know, okay. like that's not like the true, like the true love that beats death and will always succeed and you live happily ever after. Mm -hmm. And what they're sort of talking about in the film, okay. that doesn't seem real to me in the world. Okay. The quest, the pain of Inigo. Yeah. And the quest to right a wrong. That's what you feel is real. Much more so. Yeah. Okay. Fair. Yeah. I love the true love story. Sure, sure. It's sure. great. Me too. But that's not, you know, and when we have talk about, well, life is pain, princess, uh -huh. or whoever said life was fair, where is that written? Yeah. You know, that's the reality coming into the film. Yes. That's about true love. Yeah. The story about true love. Mm -hmm. And now we're back to true love. We're back to Buttercup and Wesley, and she's apologizing because she got married. And he yeah. said, no, you didn't. She's like, no, there's this man who said man and wife. He said, did you say I do? She said, no. And he says, then you, 
if you didn't say it, you didn't do it. Mm. Isn't that right, your highness? A technicality that will shortly be remedied. Because who's standing in the doorway but Prince Buttercup. Prince Humperdinck. Prince Humperdinck, <laughs> not Prince Buttercup. That's a cross-dressing uh, <laughs> Princess Bride. It's a totally different thing. No, that's pushing too far. That's the inch I can't. All right, it's too much. Yeah. Um, Humperdinck draws a sword and says, to the death. Wesley counters with, to the pain. And, and I love all the insults he throws at him. Yeah. And when he describes this to the pain, where he's going to cut off his feet, his hands, yeah. his take out his eyes, his nose, his tongue, but leave his perfect ears so that all the horrible things people are going to say to him will ring in his perfect ears. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's this moment where, but Humperdinck thinks he's bluffing. Yeah. I think you're bluffing. It's possible, pig. I might be bluffing. It's conceivable, you miserable, vomitous mass. I'm only lying here because I lack the strength to stand. But then again, perhaps I have the strength after all. And the great musical rise as he gets up and holds his sword out almost towards camera and says, Drop your sword. Sit down. And I love the way he he grabs his robes like, you know, for lack of a better term, like what we'd say a sissy. He grabs his robes like a sissy, runs and sits down into the chair. Yeah. Yeah. And then has... Buttercup, time up tightly. Yeah. In runs Indigo. Yeah. Help him up. Why? Because he has no strength. Yeah. I knew he was bluffing. I, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> bluffing. And then at this final moment, we hear the voice of Fezzik, yeah. who's found four white horses. And we need four in case we find the lady. Hi, lady. <laughs> and her little smile. Yeah. And her jumping out of the window in so that great. beautiful, beautiful shot of him catching her, which again, of course, he couldn't catch her. Oh. So he is leaning on a, on a, on a, he's at like a 70 degree angle, leaning back on a board. Holy shit. And she's got lines on her because he can't quite support her weight. Wow. It's done perfectly. It looks how perfect. Was he able to wrestle? I don't know. That's what I kept thinking as I'm hearing all these stories. Like, how could he be in the ring? Maybe by that time it, it had come to an end. And maybe this was just. Right? 87? It's 87. Yeah, because Hogan, the Hogan thing was in 83. Yeah. So I think. And maybe his back was particularly bad now and it got a little better, but he didn't maybe. live that much longer. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. When he died, like he didn't wrestle that much longer. Yeah. yeah. Did he die in like 90, 91? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Something, Something like, like that. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they ride off. And they're about to kiss. Well, before they write off, Wesley offers the Dread Pirate Roberts job. Oh, yes. Very to, important. To Inigo. You'd make a wonderful Dread Pirate totally Roberts. makes sense. And again, Mandy Patinkin's little, hmm, yeah. look, right before he jumps out, it's great. Yeah. Um, they write off. They're about to kiss. And just as they're about to kiss. What? What? No, it's kissing again. You don't want to hear that. I don't mind so much. Which is exactly what he said to him earlier in the film. Someday you might not mind so much. You're right. I hadn't it. thought about that. It brings it full circle in that way. <laughs> I love this. Or this is very William Goldman writing. Since the invention of the kiss, <laughs> there have been. Four, and if you read yeah. the book, the book is filled with other oh, stuff like this. Oh, tons that's of great. tons of jokes like that. That's great. Um, and that's the end of the story. Yeah. But Peter Falk gets up, finishes the book. Searches for his glasses, checks okay. his pockets. Okay. 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 This, that's the best. It's, a, it's just a great uh, Norman Walkwell kind of dad, a uh, grandfather. Rather. Well, and it's right. like Peter Falk has made a, a whole career of yeah. that sort of yeah. mannerism. Yeah. And he's heading out for the door when Fred says, can you come back and read the story again tomorrow? 
And there's this close-up of Peter Falk as he turns back and says, As you wish. Getting teary right With now. a twinkle in his it. eye. He has yeah. a twinkle in his eye, which is fantastic of Reiner to do a close-up on that. Yeah. Well, here's an interesting story about it. Oh. That's a pickup. That shot is the... Remember I said 99.99% was shot in England? Yeah. That was shot in Los Angeles. <laughs> the, they've edited the film and they realize we need that close... Yep. I think they had it in a wide shot. They're like, we need a close-up. So they get Peter Falk back. They get a studio. They build like one corner of a doorway. <laughs> And they have As You Wish. It's perfect. It is. It's amazing. Great way to end the film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then under uh, the great music, we have sort of the curtain call credits. Yeah. Um, and we should talk about the music that we haven't talked about it at all. Sure. Mark Knopfler. Yes. Uh, and his this is his deal. From for, Dire Straits. From Dire Straits. Yeah. Does this lovely, lyrical, warm, fairy tale, nothing like Dire Straits at all. No. And uh, here was his deal for doing the movie. Rob Reiner says, I want you to do the music for this movie. Yeah. And he said, I'll do it on one condition. Spinal Tap is my favorite film of all time. Okay. I want the hat that you wear as the interviewer in Spinal Tap, <laughs> which is like sort of the Navy yeah. Admiral hat. I want that to be somewhere in the film. So it is in Fred's room. It's in, <laughs> it's in, it's in Fred Savage's That's bedroom. Awesome. That hat is sitting hung up. That's awesome. That was Mark, Mark Loeffler's. Requirement. It's a soundtrack I've owned uh, in cassette form twice because I burned through the first one, and in CD form. And I I transfer that soundtrack over into every possible iteration: my iPod, my iPhone, uh, my computer, uh, and I even have it as a CD that I wow. keep. Yeah, because you Knopfler did not do many soundtracks. No, uh, but you can tell his guitar playing. If you listen to Dire Straits, mm. you can tell his guitar playing in this film. And that song, the end song, Storybook Story, is one of my favorite love songs ever. It's lovely. And I know the lyrics to all of it. And no one else, it never, I think it was nominated for an Oscar, I think the song was. It didn't win, but it was never played in the, in, in, like on, on, uh, right. on the radio or anything like that. And sometimes there are certain songs that are in certain films that I just, that are love songs that I just like, to me, I hold on to them and I put away. And they end up in the weirdest films. Like Helplessly in Love from New Edition off the Dragnet soundtrack is one of my <laughs> favorite love songs ever. And this is as well, Storybook Story. Because the lyrics are fantastic. It's great. Yeah. It's, it's the entire movie encapsulated in a song. And it's fantastic. So we had to talk about the reception for this film. Okay. Which was... Uh, the biggest problem was they didn't know how to market it. Yeah, no surprise. Yeah. Nothing like this had existed for yeah. so long. Because Hollywood wants to know, like, oh, you're one of these, yeah. and we know how to do that. Right. The first poster is a picture of a man reading stories to a kid in a bed. Yeah. And that was the picture. It's like, no, that's, that's not. Right. Like, yeah, that's in the film. And so it went out, and it just bombed. Yeah. It totally bombed. And this is one of those movies that was saved by VHS. Oh, wow. You know, it just slowly but surely over time after yeah. the tape came out, People started to watch it, and yeah. it's really become one of the most beloved films of all time. Bar none. Yeah. Yeah. And beloved is the right word for me. Absolutely. You know, which is like, you know, I was saying, I was saying to you when we walked out of the theater is that um, I'd done all this research. I'd read As You Wish. I'd read the book. I'd watched commentary tracks. I'd watched behind the scenes, walked into the theater, perfectly happy to just start it over again. And you know what? I'd watch it again right now. Wow. I yeah. just love it. I really do. It is a fantastic film. All right. So, John, what are your final thoughts? This is a film uh, that is that fits all our criteria. It is a classic. It is a great film. And it is a film that you can revisit at multiple times in your life. 
and get diff- different things out of it. Just like Steve said, like as a dad, he's watching yeah. this film now versus when he watched it when we were teenagers, right? As we're relatively the same age. I, I love this film as a love story. But as I'm at this stage in my life where I'm considering children for the first time, like really actually wanting to have kids, the film resonated with me differently now. And that's what's the words, the, lyrics, the, the dialogue, the scenes, all of it. I, I can't wait to introduce this to my child if I'm ever lucky enough to have a child. Like I can't wait to do it. And that speaks to the film itself, like the joy of the film, the desire to want to pass it on. Those are those rare films, the ones you want to pass on to your kids. Star Wars. I think Harry Potter is becoming that for a lot of parents yeah, now. Definitely. Yeah, and so there are certain films that you just want to pass on to your children. Uh, and this is one of them and it just hits all the right notes and if it makes you believe in love and as crazy as the world can be as tough as relationships can be you still have to believe in love maybe not true love but you have to believe in love and this film shows you that love is possible this film shows you that it's not always going to be easy yeah but that love is possible and it's why I revisit over and over again because it still makes fun of itself while also respecting what the film is and what the material is and uh, I enjoy that for that reason and it's one that is very endearing and just so rewatchable on so many levels and will, will, be, will always be one of my favorite films always no matter yeah. what I think for me the thing I'm trying to figure out how to put in words is there's something about this film that has to do with the nature of stories mm. and storytelling and it starts with and that's why I spent so much time explaining S. Morgan Stern that doesn't exist yeah and the abridged version that's not abridging anything. And this idea of this movie that is, it is what it is, a fairy tale about a princess and sword fights and adventure. Yeah. And it is commenting on that. Is that there's this thing, you know, we all grew up with some stories we loved as kids. Yeah. And we've all had the experience of revisiting whatever that thing that we loved and going, oh, it isn't what I thought it was. Yeah. Because I've changed or because I didn't see all the flaws within that thing. Right. And what's interesting about The Princess Bride is it is both being that and acknowledging that at the same time. Yeah. It is doing this thing where it's going, no, this is the great story about true love and adventure and courage and heroism and revenge and all those things. And it is all that. And it's completely 100% just like the platonic ideal of those stories that you loved as a kid. And at the same time, watching us watch it on some level and being able to, you know, it's like there's this difference between we talk about like big truth versus little truth. Yeah. You know, and I think in some ways the Princess Bride is big truth. Yeah. You know, it's like, yes, these stories, these stories that we were raised with, some of them are silly and not realistic and all this stuff. And all of that is true. And they are more important despite all that, or even because of all that, yeah. than the facts and truth and all that stuff. Yeah. That the real truth is the relationship between a grandfather and a son through these stories. That is the, that's, that thing that you got sitting at your parents' knee or having your own child at your knee and telling these great stories to each other, that's the truth. That's yeah. what's important. Yeah. And that in, in a way, and this is why listening to all these people that work on this movie talk about this, is that you can feel the love they all had for each other come through the film. Yeah. The love of storytelling, the love of childhood, the love of adventure, and true love. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's maybe that's the T for true love. Yeah. Is the big T. No, I don't think it's real, but I think it's maybe more important than the other stuff. Yeah. 
All right, so yeah, great thoughts, man. That's what that's what we think about the Princess Bride. As always, we want to hear what you think. Please visit us on our Facebook page at the Cinephile C I N E dash F I L E S. Subscribe to us on YouTube's, on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Google Play. If there are other places you can subscribe to us, subscribe to us there too. If you're on YouTube, leave us a comment. We love to read them. If you're on iTunes, leave us a review. They really help us a lot. And if you want to suggest a film that we review right here on the Cinephiles, go join us on Patreon.com slash the Cinephiles. And you can support our podcast there. We really appreciate it. And you can pick a film for us to review. And the last thing is, if you want to buy any of the films that we reviewed, you can get all of them on our website at cinephiles.net, C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S.net. And as always, you can reach me on Twitter at SR Morris. John, where can they reach you? You guys can always reach me at The Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram. Don't forget Outlaw Nation on SK Plus Podcast Channel and the Top 10 show on sk plus podcast and as well and collider network things i'm doing at collider as well so thanks for all the stuff you guys do thanks for all the comments you leave us like and really uh, we appreciate them so much on twitter on instagram wherever the stuff we post on facebook we really appreciate the time you guys take to leave us comments because it keeps us going keeps us inspired to pick these films out and talk about them and uh, it's nice to be interactive with you all and hear that we're introducing you to new films we're inspiring you to look at films Again, like so many people talked about Blade Runner, another Blade Runner 2049 has come out, that they've gone back and listened to our Blade Runner podcast with Scott Mance and gotten so much more out of the original. So it's it's nice to hear those kinds of things. So yeah, we that appreciate means a lot. that. Yep. Yeah. And so, and if you want to join us again for high adventure, sword fighting, and true love, yes. the best place to come is to visit us next week on The Cinephiles. Mm-hmm.